0: Shannon Dreher with the Mariners Week That Was on 710. All talk, no action when it comes to the hot stove, but I think we got a far better picture of where the Mariners are in the process, and we took a closer look at options away from the free agent market. We have all sorts of good conversations on the shows, including visits with Ryan Divish and Jason Churchill, Jerry Depoto, and John Morosi with their weekly shows, and we finished up the week with an interview of one of the newest members of the coaching staff, Andy McKay, who's coming downstairs after spending six years as director of player development. Let's get Get to it. Monday was otherwise occupied by the disastrous weekend of local football that we all had to endure. Tuesday, we got back to the baseball talk, starting early with the news that there had been a few changes with the Mariners coaching staff.
1: Here's the third thing you out. Andy
2: McKay will be joining the Mariners' big league staff as a major league coach, so that means he'll be in uniform. That name should be familiar to you. He's been their farm director since 2015, responsible for the player development that has taken the system from last to first in baseball. He'll now be in the dugout every night with the players. Manny Acta will remain at third base. Former player Christopher Negron takes over at first base, so it sounds like Perry Hill We'll stay, but just focus on the infield without those first-base coaching duties. I guess that's to get him off his feet more often. Uh, Interestingly, there's no bench coach. Jared Sandberg let go, so they'll split some of those responsibilities between a few veteran coaches, hitting coach Tim Laker moving on as well. I like the quote from Scott in the press release yesterday saying, our mantra here is doesn't matter, get better. I think it's great. That's a great starting point for this group, and it's something that they still need to do. I also can't help but notice that many of the new faces come from the development side of the organization. So that means they're familiar with a lot of the young players who should be moving up and starting to contribute to the future success of this team.
0: Mike's observation about the Mariners promoting from player development was something that caught my eye, too, when I was writing the post for 710sports.com. It occurred to me that it seemed like most of the hires were coming from within, and when I went back and looked it up, it turns out that the Mariners have not made an external coaching hire since before the 2019 season. That's when they brought in Perry Hill, Jared Sandberg, Tim Laker, and Paul Davis. I did talk to Jerry DiPoto about this briefly that day, and he said they did make an effort on the hitting side to look outside the organization, but ultimately settled on Arnrich. Coaching the coaches has been a priority of player development, but I found that interesting that it's been that long since there has been an external voice that has been brought into the dugout. We move on to Jake and Stacy, where Jake, in particular, well, let's just say he's getting a little anxious to see a move.
1: Quite frankly, it has to. I mean, like it has to heat up now if you are going to start signing some of these uh, the, these bigger names, and and you're starting to see, you know, the the market play out a little bit. You see Noah Syndergaard; he's gonna he's gonna sign a one year. Uh, twenty-one million dollar deal with the uh, with the Angels uh, this this season. Uh, you saw that um, uh, Jose Barrios just signed a a big time deal, a, a mega deal with uh, uh, with the Toronto Blue Jays, and will remain with the Blue Jays, which makes you also wonder what's going to happen with Robbie Ray if if the Blue Jays are going to be able to bring him back as well. Um, to add on to that pitching staff, or are they going to have to let him go because of that contract? But things are starting to heat up a little bit, and then there's the conversation about, um, you know, Jeff Passan in that in that report that he had saying that look, Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon's market are heating up, and there is a legitimate possibility and likelihood that they sign their contracts before the CBA. Negotiations start to kick in before that CBA deal runs out. Starting what is it? December second is is when that CBA is. So now you have an an extra urgency because Marcus Simeon is a name that you have highlighted, gold starred, wrote in Sharpie, whatever you want to whatever you want to say. Marcus Simeon's been your number one target. That has been the number one target for the Mariners, and that. Con- that type of contract doesn't just get done in a matter of a couple days or a matter of a week. It it, it gets it starts now. It starts you know this last week. And if you're working towards getting a big time mega deal done, now's the time where all of that work and all that foundation gets laid now. And so the the Mariners they have a lot on them if they're wanting to get this Marcus Simeon deal done and are able to get the Marcus Simeon deal done because they're going to be competing with a lot of other teams for his services, and it, it make honestly, it makes me nervous.
3: Yeah, well, when it comes to trying to get something done soon, I know fans are getting really anxious, right, because there are so many, not just expectations, but possibilities with this Mariners offseason. We're entering an offseason where the Mariners seem very willing to spend, where Jerry Depoto knows that the pressure is on to get to a World Series, and where the plan, not only that, is to start contending now. Mm-hmm. It's no longer like, oh, we hope in 2025 we can get something going. No, 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 no. You got 90 wins. You, you went all the way to the end of the line until you didn't make the playoffs. As improbable as it might have been, you were in it until the end. The expectation, Shannon Dreyer told us this, the expectation fairly for 2022 is playoffs. It's That's the next step for you. Anything short of that would be a disappointment. And I don't care if the offensive stats and those metrics didn't indicate that they'd be at 90 wins because they, they outperformed uh, mm-hmm. all expectations, but then you got to improve the team. To to try to get back to the outcome because it's no longer just improve the team and and we'll see what comes of that it's like look the season was the season you got you got ninety wins uh, whether you expected it or not so now you have to try to be better than that Jerry Depoto was really honest about knowing uh you know that that they aren't going to be able to field the exact same team and get that outcome. He's, right. he's honest about where they are, and he talked to MLB Network. I'll, here's what he said about lengthening that lineup and, and knowing exactly who they're
4: targeting. We want to add some impact, you know, make that lineup longer. While we showed promise with a lot of our players, you know, now we need to add some impact to that lineup and get longer. Uh, we feel like there's an opportunity to do that with an infield bat and in what is a historically good infield free agent class.
3: No, it doesn't stop by just adding two bats. He talks about looking at the rotation,
4: and we do need two starting pitchers. You know, we we lost Kikuchi, who was providing you know high volume innings for us these last three years, and again, that that could be market, it could be trade. But we had one opening, now we have two. So two starters, a bat for the infield, and and somebody to give us some balance toward the back end of our lineup.
3: So adding two bats, at least one infielder, at least one infielder. You need to replace Seager at third. Uh, maybe you move, you know, one of your existing infielders to third and bring in a premier uh, infielder to put it second. Um, maybe you target one of the short stops. That's what everyone's looking at, but they seem really, really adamant about keeping J.P. short. short. Uh, and then you want to add to the rotation. Curtis, do you think that bringing back Tyler Anderson would count in DePoto's mind as adding back a start one of two starting pitchers?
5: I think it would. Yeah, I don't think anybody that would have nice. any problem with no, bringing Tyler no. Anderson back. He gave you solid innings outside of Game One Sixty Two. Yeah, uh, but I, I think Tyler Anderson would be a good addition to the rotation. It should not and cannot end with just bringing him back.
1: There, there's no question about that. And if you're if you're going to bring back Tyler Anderson, everybody would be fine with that as your fifth guy in the rotation to anchor that to anchor it down at the end, but you've got to go after and get impact stars, right? If you're not going to bring back Tyler Anderson, then that that is another conversation in terms of how aggressive they really should be in the pitching market when it comes to their starting pitching. Like, to me, that's another aspect about this is we haven't, we've heard them have conversations about, oh, they, they've looked into maybe trading for Luis Castillo from the Reds, and, and that's really it in terms of being linked to pitchers. Mm-hmm. And my question is, how much is that them sitting back and trying to see how the market is going to unfold and everybody knowing that the CBA and that negotiation is looming? And is that going to make everything dormant? And they let other deals pass them by in this month? Or are they going to be aggressive and they're, they're going to go out and, and get a couple moves? They're going to make a couple signings here at the end of this month before the CBA closes. That to me is what I don't know and what I'm fearful of is seeing an article from Ryan Divish and we're going to have him on later on the show and super pumped to talk to him about it from his perspective but it's almost like this soft peddling of this idea that oh, you know hey it's going to be hard for the Mariners to you know really accomplish the goals that they have set out for themselves in terms of what they're going to do this off season or the goals that they have set for them I mean, this off season it will be hard it will be challenging it there's no question I'm not saying that that is not true but it would be incredibly frustrating to listen to that when everybody else in Major League Baseball is dealing with it. There's all these, there are these free agents that are going to sign somewhere. That that still is that still is on the table. I mean, table. I think it
3: depends who you're looking it, at. Does like, it
1: change the free agent market?
3: It it well, it does a little bit. It depends who you're looking at. Like we know Jeff Passan said that Corey Seager, who I think everyone is ruling out for the Mariners, but hypothetically that that Corey Seager uh, and Marcus Simeon would lo- would ideally like to sign. I don't know if this report has been updated, but as of a couple weeks ago, would like to sign before that December first date. Okay, so there's two guys. Some of those other guys are going to want to wait until February. So. If Seattle doesn't care about Carlos Correa, if they've been like, that's off the table, we're not going to be able to afford him, he doesn't want to come here, and we don't want to use him at short, then that doesn't matter to you. If one of your guys is Marcus Simeon, then that very much matters to you. And if you are um, the... You know the Dodgers who are potentially losing Seager, or if you're the Astros potentially losing Correa, maybe you're looking at Simeon. You know what I mean? And, and that's not to say, or that's uh, not even including other teams that aren't losing a premier shortstop uh, or second baseman or infielder that are looking at.
1: Right. So you knew that though. This isn't a surprise. You knew that you were going into this with competition. You weren't just going to be one of two teams that was going to go after Marcus Simeon. That this was going to be easy. If you if you have in your vision. Have Marcus Simeon be in that second baseman because he has that flexibility and he brings so much that you love to the table. I mean, you can't go down without a serious fight in this. I don't
3: think they w- I think they're really going to fight for it. I mean, it's – we don't. So know if they don't get Marcus think, Simeon – let me ask you this. If okay. they don't
1: get Marcus Simeon, how will you feel?
3: I'm going to feel disappointed.
1: And but then,
3: I, I don't think – as much pessimism as I've had about this team, I don't know that it will be for a lack of trying. I think that they've made it really clear that they want to add to that infield and that they're looking at 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 him at second, or yeah. at at least like a premier guy.
1: Right. So my question is, where do you go from there when you talk about adding impact and you add and um, trying to upgrade your team, trying to upgrade your roster? Uh, you know, it can come in a, in many forms. There's no doubt. But what I'm fearful of is that you make moves that are market value that are just just a tick above like for example matt chapman uh you know if if you if you get matt chapman and you get another let's say above average major league bat does that improve your team from a year ago yes but how much how much does that really improve your team does it allow you to say confidently that this can be a 90 win team Not in my mind.
3: No, because the other part of that is going to have to be the development of Kelnick, whether or not you see Julio. Yeah, but
1: it it puts so much more pressure on those guys. And and the whole idea was, is that you go out and you get impact bats so that you have veteran presence that can take the workload and take that pressure off while also these young guys are still developing and and it can all come together, um, uh, you know, in a seamless transition here because you can't go in. That's why, you know, looking at this catcher uh, situation, saying that we're going to go into the season, the Mariners are w- not making any moves. You're going to go with Luis Torrens. You're going to go Cal Raleigh. You're going to go Tom Murphy. You love all three of those guys for different reasons, but you're all looking at them making significant improvements, Cal Raleigh in particular. Like, they are re- heavily relying on Cal Raleigh to make a significant improvement with his bat heading into this next season. I don't know how comfortable I am with that. And I don't. I don't feel comfortable going in and saying, "Yep, it can be a ninety-win team based off of what do you that want to see them do? Based then. off of Jared Kelnick, you know, taking off and running with it from his September, you know, performance. We don't know how that's going to come together. So,
3: what do you want to see them do?
1: I want to see them go out and and heat up this free agent market right now. Oh, yeah, and I want to see them go out and and land Marcus Simeon.
3: So, how do you feel if they
1: don't? I I will feel very. I won't be all is lost but I will I will feel very frustrated. Now I'll just say that because I don't know where they go from there. And it's not that all is lost but who do they go after next? And then the next conversation goes same story. Trevor Story, Javi Baez, there's other teams, there's other, you know, big money market teams that are going to want want to go after those blue chip players. So we're going to have the same conversation again. Oh, well, you know, they got into it, they gave it their best shot, and they just didn't get it done.
3: I think what you're hearing is a Pete Carroll, John Schneider. We really tried to get OBJ. But I don't yeah. want to I hear think that. The Mariners, oh, no. Listen, I think the don't, Mariners don't give me I, no, that. Listen, I think the Mariners are going to be more willing than, comparatively, the Seahawks to go after those guys. Because the Mariners don't have their guys, and the Mariners are willing to spend. And by the way, there's not the same salary cap restrictions, which obviously you know. But I'm saying that like, the, I think the Mariners are more willing to make a push.
1: Well, they have to. I mean, they have the low payroll. I mean, but that's my that's my point is I don't want to hear about a push. I want to hear about getting it done. <laughs> that's what I want to hear about. So that's the, that's the part that makes me nervous when it comes to these conversations um, and when it comes to actually getting down to crunch time and getting these things done and seeing that, you know, look, there's conversations about Jerry Depoto not wanting to go past a certain year. I, I I'm all fine and dandy with that. I don't want to pay. I don't feel comfortable paying somebody who, you know, like Marcus Simeon, for example, 30 who's age 31 and paying and giving him an you know, seven plus year type of contract. Right. Like it makes me very uncomfortable. But in terms of, you know, a five, six year deal and your are in your average per year salary is higher because you're you're shortening the length of that deal. I don't think there's there's any reason why they shouldn't do that.
0: I'm going to lead here with two words that I think fans hate to hear. It's early. I'm going to say it again. It is early. That's three words. Still counts. When this aired, teams had been able to sign free agents for all of eight days. Now, the kind of signings that we all want to see, they take time. We've seen some big names signed, but Verlander and Syndergaard, they were one year deals. Brios resigned with his team. Eduardo Rodriguez, now that was a bigger deal, but he had ties to the Tigers, so I, I can see that coming together a little bit quicker. For the most part, the big dollar, big years deals, they're going to take time. You've got to remember this isn't just a matter of throwing tons and tons of dollars at a player, saying take it or leave it. There's a lot more that goes into it. The players have a say in this. Most want to explore all of their options. In that regard, it's early. There are stages to these kinds of signings, and we'll get a little bit of a better look at where the Mariners are a little bit later in the podcast when we hear from Jerry DePoto. Now more talk on Jake and Stacy Tuesday as they got Ryan Divish's take on what we could see.
3: I want to start with uh, just kind of the basics. So this is going to be very basic for you, but just so we can make sure we cover it here. Uh, why are we expecting a lockout and why might most of those free agents wait until after the lockout to sign rather than sign before?
6: Yeah. So the the CBA is, is expiring on December 1st, 1159. So uh, basically what their owners will do is likely just lock out the players on, on December 2nd, once, once December 2nd starts. It's mostly a um, you know basically what they call a, uh, a they call it a weapon almost in terms of negotiating weapon, but by doing that, it just kind of sends the message to the players like that they're not messing around and they're going to make things as difficult as possible. I mean, the whole idea of bargaining and good faith has kind of been lost over the last few years with, with the pandemic stuff and even in years past. So they're just going to lock them out as just a tool to to start the process. Um, which means that, like, any player on the 40-man roster cannot have contact with the organization at any level. I mean, you can't – a player can't call the PR staff. They can't go to any of the facilities and work out or anything. They can't use any of that stuff. They're, you're, they're locked out. So it's just a tool used in these bargaining and negotiations. And as part of that, the uh, the tra- there will be a transaction freeze. So no free agents can sign during that time. And that's a big part of it because, like, you know, these guys aren't getting paid already. They only get paid during season. And then you take away that aspect of being able to negotiate a new contract. So it's a, it's just a tool. As far as, like, why players may wait, because I think a lot of them want to know if teams are going to change the luxury tax or if there's going to be changes to arbitration or changes towards, um, you know, overall payrolls, all these different things yeah. that could come into effect now, what the owners are saying is, like, look, if you want some stability and you don't want to be part of, like, a two-week chaos, maybe you should do this now and, and, and agree to something now. And they're telling teams, you know, agents are telling teams, hey, sign this guy now. We'll sign it now so you don't have to worry about it because you don't want to be playing musical chairs for a free agent and then be caught when the music stops and not have anybody, which is something that the Mariners run the risk of.
1: Yeah, they do run the risk of that. and And so – I was excited to have you on here, Ryan, just to kind of talk through some of that is, you know, one of the two names that we heard that might be interested in doing that before the CBA, uh, you know, negotiations start and the lockout begins is uh, a name that obviously the Mariners have a tremendous amount of interest in. Marcus Simeon, where do you think the Mariners lie in that conversation? I mean, they obviously are very interested, but are they real contenders to be able to land him?
6: Yeah, I think they are in the sense, one, Marcus Simeon is from the West Coast, and a lot of guys that live on the West Coast kind of want to stay there in terms of family. He's a Bay Area guy, which makes it difficult because the San Francisco Giants are also looking for a second-base type player, and he would fit them nicely. But I do think that the Mariners, they've had conversations with with Scott Boris, his agent, about the possibility. If you look at the fit, he it's perfect for the Mariners. Second baseman that can go in, he provides right-handed power. You know, he fits nicely in that top four of the lineup, takes the spot of Kyle Seager in the batting order for now, and and just gives you that kind of one piece you can lean on. I think Timmy, who had been a shortstop in the past, understands too that by playing second base, the wear and tear on his body is a little bit better. Now he's older. I think he's going to be 31. Mm -hmm. And so that changes the market. This isn't like Carlos Correa, who's looking for seven or eight years. You're probably talking about four or five. But what I think the Mariners are going to run into is, what if Marcus Simeon has the same offer from the Mariners and the same offer for the Giants? I mean, the Giants won 107 games last year. It's his home area. Does that, does that change the math? Do the Mariners have to go more? I mean, do they have to give the extra year? It was kind of like, and I wrote this in the paper today, but a few years ago when they were trying to get Nelson Cruz to be the DH, every team, and there was four offers for Nelson Cruz at three years. And about twelve to fourteen million dollars per year. The Mariners were the only team that gave him the fourth year and and it worked out, you know, he'd said yes to them and it worked out great. It was one of the best free agent signings in in club history. Do the mariners have to do that? If a team is offering four years to Marcus Simeon, do the Mariners have to give him five and then possibly or six and run the risk of having a thirty six year old or thirty seven year old (laughs) second baseman, which is kind of what they try to do to get away from Robinson Cano being a thirty eight year old second baseman.
1: Yeah, it, it does. You do find yourself in a really interesting predicament, and, and so you, you kind of answered my question here. But do you anticipate who are the teams that you anticipate being legit competitors with the Mariners for Marcus Simeon and his services?
6: Well, I, I know the Yankees would like him. They'd like him to play shortstop, though, and you know because they're moving Glaber Torres to second base. Um, and then, you know, obviously the, the Blue Jays still have some interest because he was there and he was solid for them. The Giants. I mean, he, you know, a guy like that that could play shortstop if he need him to, but is good at second base. I mean, he's been a legit top five MVP candidate the last three years, I think. I mean, a lot of teams will find a way to fit that guy into their lineup mm-hmm. and he's, he's versatile enough to play for, or play second, third or shortstop. So I, I think there's several teams, but yeah, I, I from what i had been told down there, you know, you hear a lot of things down at the GM meetings. He'd prefer to kind of play on the West Coast. You know, after playing in Oakland for so long, he got used to being out on that side. And, and going to Toronto was a little bit different. So I think, you know, San Francisco would be the main one. But, you know, also you got the Dodgers. You never know what the Padres are going to do. though. Both teams have luxury tax issues. But, again, like somewhere around there. And even the Texas Rangers, who just – we're going to add $100 million to their payroll, all of a sudden they've become an obstacle for the Mariners that maybe they weren't anticipating having when they went into this offseason.
3: Hey, I got the impression reading your column that the Mariners would almost rather spend more than do a longer-term deal. I think we all know in theory why committing to a guy for seven years or more uh, might be off-putting to quite a few GMs that want to make some changes, but why in particular for DePoto would he rather do deals that are a little
6: shorter? we're we still talking about baseball here or something else about this commitment stuff. Cause you know, I didn't know, but I I'm kind of like, um, no, I, I, yeah, I don't think that Jerry DePoto really wants to go down that eight year, nine year road. You know, Correa is only 26 and and it, he is looking for a longer term deal near 300 million. I think the Mariners did the dance with Robinson Canelo at 10 years. And, and obviously Correa would be younger, but I just don't know that they want to tie up that much time into one guy because Nobody, you know, you've seen it like what happened with Albert Pujols where you got the, the 38, 39-year-old guy that really can't play anymore and he's carrying one-third of your payroll commitment. And also with those guys, if you don't play them, they're unhappy you know, anybody who sits there and says, oh, you know, these older guys, they don't mind not playing, particularly in a place they've been for a while. It was like when Griffey came back, um, 2009 again, and, and they were like, oh, yeah, he's perfectly fine being a bat off the bench. No, it's Ken Griffey Jr. He's going to the Hall of Fame. He's been the guy, particularly in the Mariners uniform. There was no way he was going to accept playing once or twice a week. So I think that's what you run into, and it can just be, it can really just kind of mess up everything you're doing. I think the shorter the, the shorter the commitment, oftentimes is just a better fit. So, yeah, the Mariners are willing to go at a higher average value uh, per year on a shorter deal. Some players may want that, some might not. I mean, we've seen some guys take that shorter time, maybe a four-year deal with a higher, like a $32, $33 million uh, average salary, which is crazy to think about and be happier with it. Because, you know, it's the relationship is works both ways. Maybe you don't want to keep the player at age 36, and maybe the player wants to leave. By then, too. So, you know, commitment can be a tricky thing, as spoken by a baseball writer that knows something about that. <laughs>
1: uh, Divish, we you, the other aspect of this is, you know, their are pitching rotation. I mean, we we are very focused, obviously, on on the lineup and the bats and how they're going to fix their offense. But they've got two openings and uh, two big spots that they have to fill. One, do you think Tyler Anderson is going to be part of that equation? And two, how aggressive do you anticipate them being in terms of trying to find that top-of-the-rotation anchor for them?
6: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. When Kikuchi kind of did them a favor by opting out, now all of a sudden they can add two spots. Um, I think they'd like to aim high for a big name. But it might not necessarily come in the in the free agent market. Obviously, I don't know that they're shopping for Max Scherzer at you know three or four years. I know Passon mentioned that once, but I just don't know that he's really interested in that. Um, you know that you know Cindergard is that's kind of seems like a reach to me to give 21 million dollars to a guy that you also have to lose a draft pick on. I, I I don't know that the market is is great. I mean, Robbie Ray is he a fit? I don't know. I think he's going to get a lot of money, but the Mariners could also go and get that one kind of frontline guy via the trade market or a, a upper level guy, but then add to the back of it by like signing Tyler Anderson and, and giving James Paxton a, a minor league sign or a, even a one year deal, like kind of what he got last year. It's very low risk with a high reward. I mean, when, when James Paxton is healthy, he's going to be one of your top two pitchers, you know, and, and he's going to be healthy next year. So I, I think that's not a, not a, a bad idea to offer him a one year deal with some incentives, but go out and get the Tyler Anderson or somebody that's an innings eater type. You know, and then maybe go to the go look at the A's and say, Hey, what do you want for Chris Bassett or Frankie Montas or Sean Mania? Because those guys could be available or some of the pitching that the Marlins have that are out there because they're younger and they're under club control and they fit their plan a little bit better than maybe just going out and trying to find the best free agent pitcher on the market, because I just don't know that it it, it is going to come back and be where they want it to be Mm. in that regard. And I think their focus, like for me, I think that they're going to get maybe the one impact bat by a free agency. And they're maybe going to have to go out and trade for one, whether maybe it's trading for Matt Chapman or the A's or something like that. I don't know that they can buy both bats. I think they're going to try, but again, it could be difficult to go out and buy two bats on the market because of just the demand of them all.
3: You talked about this on your podcast during uh, last year's free agency, especially after Kevin Mather's comments. But there was this idea that, you know, Jerry DiPoto may not have the free reign that he would like to be able to sign who he wants um, or who he would want. I'm sure that's the case for a lot of GMs who would always love more freedom to spend more money. But um, this year he's he's heading into a year where he's been promoted, now president of baseball ops as opposed to just general manager. How does that change the control that he has over the move? Moves the Seahawks make and before you answer I know the context is a little bit different coming out of a 2020 versus heading into 22.
6: Well yeah no he, he has he doesn't have Kevin Mather as the go-between between John Stanton like in the past Mather would you know Stanton would help kind of dictate the budget along with Mather and then tell Jerry this is how we want to do it it's so similar Mather's plan last year with the Hat in Hand and free agency you know, that limited poto on what he wanted to do because if you recall last year at the end of last season and they played pretty well, they were all there was a lot of talk about, hey, we want to supplement this team because we think it can win immediately. We think it can be competitive in twenty twenty one. And then all of a sudden the talk changed. You know, they have the meetings and everything and, and then they start talking about well, we still need to figure out who some of these players are. Mm-hmm. And when you when you get to free agency and you hear that, you know, they're in on Colton Wong, but they can't give him the extra year that he wants, or they're in on Blake Chynan and can't match the money, or Taiwan Walker. They're not allowed to give him a second year, hoping that all these guys kind of you know take the cheaper deals because that's all they have. Well, that's kind of a flawed thinking. And if, you know, if the Mariners were able to to get Taiwan on a two year deal and Colton Wong on a three year deal, then you're looking at this off season as like, oh man, they can really invest in Chris Bryant or Martha Simeon or somebody else and say, hey, we are one piece away where we can go after an upper echelon pitcher. But because they didn't do that last year, now they're trying to fill in multiple pieces. So it's always like, you know, everybody sits here and says, well, we're not winning or this or that. You're always still kind of building. And if you don't address it now, you're going to have to address it a year from later or a year from now. So I think that's what the Mariners are running into this year. They have to add multiple spots. And, and you know, they may not be able to do it because of the competitive nature of the free agent market. With Texas getting in it, with Detroit suddenly having – adding about $100 million to their payroll and, and getting Eduardo Rodriguez, a guy the Mariners really liked, I mean, that's a problem. And so, you know, it could be that they might not be able to get everybody they want in the free agent market, but because they have all these prospects and stuff and a lot of depth, they can kind of go in a different direction and go by the trade route, whether it is somebody from the A's or, you know, Byron Buxton's out there. We've heard talk about Brian Reynolds. Um, you know, Pittsburgh, all those guys are available. The one thing is, You know, if you're asking, if your starting point to ask is Julio Rodriguez, it seems like it'll be a non-starter for the conversation.
0: And the Mariners have certainly heard that. I'm going to be really interested when this is all said and done to see what role trades ultimately played in who we see in spring training. For once, this is not the desired path to talent acquisition that Jerry DiPoto wants to take, and he really doesn't want to touch his top prospects. He might have to. If they're not able to buy the players and free agency they feel they need, don't you have to make a deal? We shall see. Wyman and Bob on Tuesday turned their attention to the Manager of the Year Award, which was to be announced later in their show that day.
7: The announcement for the Manager of the Year will come down around, what do we think, 345? Where did left go? He left the room. He I think 345 our time is when that yeah. announcement will be made. And if Scott Service wins, he will join us around 445. Right. And, and, this, and I had some people hitting me on Twitter like, dude, is that real? You don't really care that much. I'm like... Listen, I'm not, it's not going to ruin my week if he doesn't win. It's an accolade, it's an acknowledgement, but it is real in 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 what I believe about it. That's that's not manufactured. I absolutely believe this should be a slam dunk. That, right. that that if you're if you're taking all factors into account, it's not a tough decision. But, you know, we we've I've seen some people saying, you know, hey, the baseball writers if they don't get to the postseason, that's a disqualifier. Morosi, John Morosi, who's our Baseball and uh, hockey analyst is a voter said you know for him that's not a disqualifier but he's speaking for himself right that's not every other voter out there so who who knows who knows how they're gonna how they're gonna do it all I'm saying Dave is if they put any effort into their vote yeah any effort into looking at the three candidates all right let me see the merits of each one of these guys it's incredibly easy
8: yeah well and I think it's too bad they don't put more into this we talked a little bit about this yesterday about the Pro Bowl. You know, whenever the Pro Bowl came around, like, that's a big deal, man. That that can make you a lot of money. Yeah. And the same thing with service. I mean, you have that now on your resume. You know, and I mean, he's not some young, you know, young guy who's trying to climb the ladder. I mean, he's pretty much made it. But still, having that, it's very important. So I guess my point would be I think they should take it more seriously. And I feel like that for each guy, there should be somebody like you that would, you know, kind of, Say, hey, look, stump for it a little bit. Like the
7: Football Hall of Fame, like they do? They get in the room and stump for the players? Yeah,
8: exactly. This is what he is, the kind of guy that he did. I mean, because a lot of people wouldn't necessarily remember the whole – uprising after kendall graveman got traded yeah you know he he rules that that clubhouse and he has you know the right leadership in in place and but yeah you mentioned the injuries and you know and just the expectations i mean the whole thing i think if everybody who's voting looked at that it would make an incredibly strong case now i'd like to hear you know i mean Obviously, Tampa Bay and Houston—they kind of speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, what are some of the other things that make it? You know,
7: you mentioned uh, how the two hundred million dollar payroll in Houston. Yeah, and it's not quite that, but it's approaching that. It's a close. Right. I mean, they were those. The expectations have to be taken into consideration. Is is, is the larger point for me? Yeah. In that, had had Dusty not gotten that team to the playoffs or Kevin Cash hadn't gotten that team to to the playoffs, people would have said, whoa, they underachieved. Right. The, the, the expectations were complete. All of these people who were voting probably were asked at some point to make predictions on the season. Where do you think that who's going to win the West, who's going to win the East, who's going to be the World Series reps, all of that. And I'm sure when it came to the Mariners, if they made a prediction, they probably looked at it and went, yeah, that's probably a 70, 75-win team. I mean, sure. they're building, they're young, that's full of inexperience and youth. They're taping together the rotation. They spent $8 million on... You know, Paxton, who may or may not be healthy, and then 24 pitches later, he's not. I, I just think if they take into account, you know, what they probably said at the beginning of the year, their own expectations about this team, and then looked at it and said, wait, they won 90 games in that division with three starters completely out of the mix, losing one of your best bullpen arms and losing your gold glove first baseman and your rookie of the year and having the lack of production that you had up and down the the holes in that. How many many below 200 hitters were in that lineup all year?
8: Yeah, no kidding. I mean, and remember every time we'd play the uh, Astros, there'd be like, what, three guys over 300. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, you know, over 275, there'd be like, you know, seven or eight. So, yeah, it was, uh, how many were above 200?
7: Like three, yeah. It was. I mean, it was dreadful. It yeah. was dreadful. And it's not a. You know, this is not an opportunity to rip the team or anything. It's just. It speaks to what he got out of very limited resources. Right. Very and that, limited because of youth and inexperience. And these guys may end up being great, but they weren't great last year. You didn't have great hitter. You had Mitch Haniger and you had Ty France and you had Kyle Seeger who were productive, but Kyle Seeger had a dreadful. Uh, season in terms of average and and you had Ty France who was hurt for a bit, he was gone out of the lineup then he came back and and hand, it was just it was just a year where there's no reasonable baseball fan or analyst would look at what they went through and say, yeah, they should win 90 games. No, not even close.
8: Well, and, and also you go back to what is coaching or in this case managing about. Ultimately, like if you just had to say, you know, one thing, what's the one thing it's about? it's about getting the absolute best out of your players getting the absolute best out of every individual player that's and what he that's did
7: what he did I, I don't know how you could argue anything else you know it yep. just you know and then on top of it i think the Graveman thing was a big deal now whether people think players should or should not have been upset cuz we saw some texts yesterday about oh well, these guys are pros and they're being paid and grow up and Listen, I get that attitude. I understand it. But that's, the reality is guys were incredibly upset. That's what was happening. It's not whether it's right or wrong. It's what was. And we, we heard about it, but they were really mad at Jerry. They were really mad that they, they took their best bullpen arm and traded him to the enemy across the field at the time. Right. The, the wheels could have completely come off. Oh, and it was right after a dramatic win. A huge win. The biggest win of the season in yeah. terms of drama that felt like a playoff. I remember us coming in and going, man, it felt like a playoff atmosphere. And that game meant everything. And then then during our show, it's the, the word comes down. He's tra- it's like, what? Yeah. It did what? And, it, I mean, that, that could have blown the whole thing to smithereens. Could have just said, well, all right, there went the season. And somehow he, he rallies the troops, gets them on the same page, and is able to produce a 90-win season. That's not like the other ones. People saying, "Well, what about 2018 and this year?" And that those teams were built completely different. They were loaded with veterans, with Cano and Cruz, and you had Felix and you had Seeger, and you had you had all this veteran uh, talent on the roster. You didn't have that this year. You yeah. didn't have it.
8: Well, and I wish that he would. You know, obviously, it'll mean that he comes on our show. But I just to ask the question, like, what did you do to get that clubhouse back on track?
7: Yeah, you know? I would. I would love to have that conversation on or off the air. Just like, well, t- take me through that. What was that like? Yeah. I mean, were were you doubting Were you thinking, oh, great, here comes the end of the season? Or, you know, what was he thinking at the time? I mean, well, I wonder how he felt about the trade. If he was, if that was a Jerry move. I mean, he's not going to say that on the air, obviously. Right. But if I could talk to him off the air, I'd love to know. Hey, were you were you fighting this or were you on board or how did you feel about that? Were you thinking it was going to blow the clubhouse up? Or and a lot of managers
8: could just say, "Hey, look, man, that's uh, that's what the manager does or the the GM, and we have to just roll with it, and that's it." I have a feeling it wasn't anything like that. I have a feeling you let people express themselves and get everything out in the open, and then you know a lot of times when you do that it's like being a psychiatrist i always talk about that with coaches you know they they have to treat everybody differently and again trying to get the best out of guys so yeah it's just a lot of things that he had to overcome this year to get to a 90 win season which i was being ridiculously optimistic at the beginning of the season saying they'd win 86 and yeah nobody nobody would have thought that
7: no thought and, that. and none of the more importantly none of the you know, experts, I'm doing the air quotes, the analysts, the experts, they, they, and they do it every season. I, mean, I don't hold people to their predictions. I mean, you're, it's a it's a guess. You're guessing. Right. You know, based on what this roster looks like, here's how good they should be. That's not taking into account any of the key players being injured or having a down year or what have you. So, But I would say probably to a man, anybody that's a baseball writer, that's a voter that was asked to make a prediction on what this team was going to do, none of them had them 500 certainly not 90 wins they had them in the 70s that was the that was the dominant prediction anywhere from 70 to 75 that was it and it was realistic I didn't look at that as an insult or how could you think that of this team I was like yeah that's where I'm at that's that's the realist this is a rebuild this is youth this is inexperienced they didn't have any huge offseason acquisitions this is this and, the, and management thought that remember they were talking about it's not about wins and losses it's about the development they were preparing the fan base for a losing season and sort of trying to say hey the future's going to be great this year could be a little rough yeah. and it it just it turned into a, a an incredibly fun season entertaining season and i just i think you've got to give credit to the guy who was who was pushing all the buttons there
8: yeah well and speaking of stomping uh if you go to 710sports.com that's 710sports.com Brent Stecker <laughs> wrote a uh, wrote an article that basically outlined what you know what you said yesterday during our, during our show so yeah lots of lots of good reasons there to get uh to get Scott Service AL Manager of the Year.
0: Apparently, Bob and Dave's ballots got lost in the mail because Scott Service was runner-up to raise Skipper Kevin Cash. As it turns out, Bob had a little more trouble getting past the injustice of it all than did the Skipper, who joined the show later in the day.
7: We'll be talking about the Manager of the Year award that was handed out to the wrong guy earlier. Just a moment. Oh, and in fact, I think we've got our guy with us right now, the rightful owner of that award is with us on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline, the man who was far too classy to say he got screwed, so I will say it for him, the (laughs) Mariners manager that is Scott Service. Scott, how are you?
9: I'm doing great, guys. How how are you? That's quite an intro into, into, the, into the show here. Oh, he, uh, he,
8: Scott, he's been ranting for like the last two hours, man. It's uh, it, it's great. Yeah. I'm,
7: I'm ticked, Scott. I, I'm on your behalf. I am ticked because, and I and I I feel I'm looking at this as an, a long-time baseball fan being completely objective and looking at what did each of you three have to deal with, what were the expectations, what did you have to do to get to where you ultimately ended up. And the other two, with all due respect, who are great managers. I'm a huge Dusty Baker fan. They didn't have to overcome and, and, and achieve what they did with less than you did. I mean, we can talk injuries. We can just talk youth and inexperience. An we can talk lack of production from youth and inexperience. An and you were not expected. I'm talking about expectations on the season were 70 to 75 wins. You won 90 games. I mean, that is absolute brilliance. And I, I just I, I think they missed the mark. I think they absolutely gave it to the wrong guy.
9: Well, I appreciate uh, the kind words, but, uh, you know, we had a heck of a season. We we really did. And I think that the thing for me is, you know, when you you sign up and you you get an opportunity to to manage a ball club at the major league level and certainly a great franchise like we have here in Seattle. And my goal is to get us back into the playoffs and win the freaking World Series. That's that's (laughs) always been my goal, and it's not going to slow down at all. We've uh, got an exciting offseason ahead of us, but we did some a lot of. We did a lot of really positive things last year with a group of players that, that really stepped up, and I'll, I'll take my coaching staff against anybody's in the leagues. So our guys work their tail off, and I love our group. So we got a lot to build off of there. And unfortunately, uh, didn't go our way today,
7: but uh, we got a lot to look forward to.
8: Actually, I thought Scott that you called in to brag about your
7: Packers, but
8: uh, <laughs> well, we won't talk about that. Yeah, don't but... don't
7: don't encourage him.
8: No, but seriously did you get a a feeling of like Bob and I were living and dying by every game and it was just so excited. It's like you brought baseball back to, to Seattle. Did you get a sense from that for that, from the fans of, of how invested the, the, this fan base was in your team?
9: No question about it, Dave. I I thought, you know, when we got on the, just a fantastic run in September, when we're hanging, you know, we had to win like every game as we got going into September and, you know, I think we had about five series to go, and I made the comment. I think if we win every series, I think we'll be right there at the end, and we did. We won every series except the last one of the year. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't quite have enough. Yeah. We ran out of gas a little bit, but uh, yeah, the fan base and and seeing them get excited again. I think I made the comment the last weekend of the season that baseball's back in Seattle, and I certainly felt that. You know, the way they showed up for that final uh, weekend series there uh, to to end the season, and. Again, it's an exciting off season for us. We gotta get better. I keep talking about it all the time and this is a time to you know, I am on calls here. We have our, our off season uh you know, call them our B V Y calls with our players and, and those are continuing to go on right now. So if that's where the focus is and Along the way, hopefully we can add a few more players as well because I know our fans are going to be there with us next year.
7: Hey, Scott, of this, of this past season, as you reflect on it, and I just listed all the things. I mean, you know, we I talked about the fact that you lose three starting pitchers, one of them after 24 pitches, your biggest offseason acquisition in James Paxton. Ultimately, Sheffield is gone. Dunn is gone. You lose Mark Gavichis, You lose your gold glove first baseman. your rookie of the year. I mean, it was one loss after another coupled with inexperience. And then the the Graveman trade, I could have gone the wrong way in that clubhouse. We had heard and read all about how that was really poorly received initially, yet you held it together. And I thought that was maybe the most impressive thing. But in your opinion, looking back, what was the toughest thing that you had to overcome last year? I think early in the season,
9: we had a uh, series down in San Diego. I'm going to say it was like May 15th or 20th. Um And it was right at that point we lost three players to COVID, three of our better relief pitchers. And we were playing a Padres team that was really hot. They had just gotten healthy, um, and they smoked us for three games. We had lost six games in a row. And I really thought at that point in the season it could go one way or the other. It was going to get really bad, or we could kind of pull each other up. And, and we had a little team meeting after that final game and you know couldn't get out of San Diego quick enough. But I thought it was really <laughs> important at that time that we – we we looked at each other um and ultimately you have to look in the mirror and, and what can you do to get to be better at your job focus on the little things to get better our guys did that we started to play better we had a good june we started picking it up in july you know we had some big wins you know the the, the trade at the deadline you know i thought everybody everybody you know certainly a lot of close friendships uh our players had with Graveman and, and what he had done to that point. But ultimately we knew we need a little bit more offense to get into the playoffs or give us a chance. And that's what Abraham Toro brought for us. And we now he's a part of us going forward for the next five years, at least. So uh, it, it all worked out. But I, I think looking back on the year, it was at mid-May, we were kind of at rock bottom at that point. And, you know, it happens at certain points of the season you got to figure out a way to get through it. And our guys really pulled together. That's a credit to our players. On uh, our coaching staff, you know, we had, you know, I, I look at the, the Mitch Hannegers and Marco Gonzalez, what JP Crawford was able to do. Tom Murphy's a really strong voice in our clubhouse, you know. Kyle Seeger, obviously at the time, were a big, big part of that as well. So, you know, you lean on those guys. Those guys bought in, and then the players start holding other players accountable. Then you got something, and that's what we saw develop throughout the course of the season with us.
8: That's awesome. Uh, did you say earlier BVY calls? Is that what? <laughs> Best version of yourself, bro. That's what we're working on. <laughs> hey, yeah. that's Come on bro. A coach, that's a coaching uh, thing I have not heard. I'm I'm writing it down. Coach. Hey. Uh,
9: it's 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 fun to go through that stuff at this time of the year. Now that everybody's had a chance to kind of unplug and relax, and then get looking ahead to next year.
8: Yeah. Hey, uh, one of the most exciting guys I, this year, and we got a chance to talk to him right when he came up, and he came up with Kelnick, and that was Paul Seawald and he was just I mean a 30 year old guy who came from nowhere and just you know him guys like that and just your bullpen in general how good that that was fun I mean never never thought I'd say that about a bullpen it was so exciting to watch almost uh, almost every night that was a that's quite a group that you pulled together including especially Seawald what a what a great character he was telling us you know hey I'm the young spring chicken coming up here at age 30 (laughs) I mean just a a great personality It, it really is and and you know, that
9: bullpen is the reason we won 90 games. I I said many times throughout the season. I thought they were the the most valuable player. Uh, you know if, if you could put a group um, and what they meant to our team. We won so many close games because those guys were able to step up and and get the huge outs. And nobody got more huge outs for us than Paul Seewald. And I love his personality. You guys are starting to see it. You'll see more of it next year. Now everybody gets to to understand who he is and and how he's wired and. One thing that's so great about Paul is he truly believes in the Mariners. And I think when you get to that point in your career where you start to figure some things out and you understand that the people around you working with you every day, the pitching coaches, the analysts, the strategists, and hey, this is working. And I'm turning out to be the pitcher I thought I could be. You get a lot of buy-in. And we've got a lot of buy-in right now with a lot of those bullpen guys because our, our entire organization's in a nice job with them.
7: Hey Scott, when it when it comes to the offseason, I know we're dealing with a potential work stoppage, and that that certainly is a different dynamic. But when it comes to hey, we got to address this spot or this, uh, we need a pitcher, we need a second baseman. That relationship with you and Jerry, how does that work? Is it is it, hey Scott, I'm we're looking at these four players for second base. What do you think? Or do you go to him? Hey Jerry, I I love the Simeon guy. I'd love him at second. Can we get make that happen? How's that relationship work in terms of potential? Uh, individuals to fill the spots you have open.
9: Yeah, as far as the relationship goes, and fortunate for me, you know, I I worked in a front office capacity for a number of years before I got this job. So I understand how, how negotiating contracts with free agents and how trades come together with other general managers. I also understand the personalities that are in the front offices of some of these other teams because I've dealt with them before. So, you know, when Jerry says, hey, we're talking through, like, roster needs and where we might go, you understand like you know okay this is the players or players that we're interested in and he's represented by this agency and how is this going to come together and what the timing of it is we talk nonstop, and, and trying to figure out you know what's going to be best for us going forward and, and certainly we want to be aggressive this off offseason uh, I think the fact that you know this deadline on December 1st and who knows what's going to happen there but you're starting to see some guys sign early uh, which I think is a good thing and Hopefully they can get this, you know, the the labor, uh, the contract, uh, hopefully the dispute can get settled here before we get to a point where there is a lockout. Uh, I'm hopeful that that will happen. But again, it's two parties, two different sides have to come together and there's a lot to talk about. So, you know, we'll see what, what happens there, but it is a big off season for us. I, I keep talking about that. And, you know our focus and my focus a lot not just on the players that we want to acquire and bring in, but even probably more so is the guys that we have in-house coming back and we need to continue to get better. There's a lot of guys you know that I think have just kind of scratched the surface and how good they can be a lot of young players, and that's really taking up the majority of my time right now.
7: Well, Scott, I think I speak for Dave and a lot of Mariner fans and saying we, we had more fun watching this team last season than I've had in years. I mean, it was just it, every night. It was appointment TV, going home and watching yeah. this team. It was so much fun. Congrats on the year. And, again, you're too classy to say it. you got screwed. You should have been the manager of the year in the American League. Uh, but congratulations on being in, in the final three and I guess coming in second. Uh, and can't wait, cannot wait for the season to get started. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us.
9: Appreciate it, guys. I appreciate your support. And again, it's it's about taking that next step with this ball club. And that's what we're all working forward towards right now.
0: Well, we've all been focused on the potential addition of players that can take this group to the next level. Scott Service pointing out that the existing group has got to get better. That's all part of it. They continue to develop at the big league level. Players, of course, have their off-season routines and work, but good to hear that Service and his coaching staff have been checking in and conducting the BVY talks, especially since they weren't really able to have those in-person exit interviews this year. Good stuff from the skipper, and I think Bob will recover. Moving along to the next day, Salk also with some thoughts on what Divish had to say on Jake and Stacy, and I think he had a good take on a point of contention with many who believed they should have made bigger moves last off season.
6: Well, yeah, no, he he has he doesn't have Kevin Mather as the go between between John Stanton. Like in the past, Mather would, you know, Stanton would help kind of dictate the budget along with Mather, and then tell Jerry this is how we want to do it. It's so similar Mather's plan last year with the hat in hand and free agency, you know, that limited Depoto Poto and what he wanted to do. Because if you recall last year at the end of last season, and they played pretty well, they were all, there was a lot of talk about, Hey, we want to supplement this team because we think it can win immediately. We think it can be competitive in 2021. And then all of a sudden the talk changed, you know, they have the meetings and everything. And, and then they start talking about, well, we still need to figure out who some of these players are. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you get to free agency and you hear the, you know, they're in on Colton Wong, but they can't give him the extra year that he wants or they're in on Blake Trinan and can't match the money or Taiwan Walker, they're not allowed to give him a second year hoping that all these guys kind of, you know, take the cheaper deals. Cause that's all they have. Well, that's kind of a flawed thinking. And you know, if the Mariners were able to, to get Taiwan on a two year deal and Colton Wong on a three year deal, then you're looking at this season. as like, Oh man, they can really invest in Chris Bryant or Martha Simeon or somebody else and say, hey, we are one piece away where well, we can go after an upper echelon pitcher. But because they didn't do that last year, now they're trying to fill in multiple pieces. So it's always like, you know, everybody sits here and says, well, we're not winning or this or that. You're always still kind of building. And if you don't address it now, you're going to have to address it a year from later or a year from now. So I think that's what the Mariners are running into this year. They have to add multiple spots and and, you know, they – may not be able to do it because of the competitive nature of the free agent market.
2: Yeah, I think there's some good points in there. I I don't know whether I 100% agree with Ryan. I mean, I I understand the idea that they could have done more in last offseason. I was also of the – and some of it, especially with the extra pitching, they should have done it. Like I'll I'll be clear. There was no reason to go either or with Paxton or Walker if you were going to bring them back. Go both. There was no mm-hmm. downside. It was just a small amount of money that you were going to pay to 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 Taiwan Walker after he had had a pretty good season with you. Like I I I saw no downside to that at the time, and, and I think especially it, in hindsight. Well, especially in hindsight, I mean that that's all you needed was a little bit more pitching depth that really could have could have paid dividends for you with that six man rotation, maybe not having all those bullpen days, et cetera. But I I think that there was something to giving these guys an opportunity to see who had it and who didn't. Um, and and yeah, you could have had a Colton Wong. Yeah, you, there's some other folks that you could have gone after in the last last season. but they have been steadily building this thing with adding pieces every year, right? You added Ty France along the way. You added some of your bullpen pieces along the way, and now this offseason, you need to exceed that. You need to do even more. Would it be nice to have second base available and now just be looking at third? Maybe, but if you come away with Trevor Simeon and he ends up moving to second base, and you're like, well, that's exactly the way we want this to go, I don't think you're going to be thinking too much about whether or not you could have had Colton Wong. So it, the past is fine. You can look at the past and kind of it, it leads you to where you are today, certainly. And there is benefit to to looking at some of the mistakes and also the the, the successes that they've had. But the reality is, what do you do now moving forward? <clears throat> Last year was never really supposed to be the competition year. This year is. So yeah, would it be easier if you had one or two more pieces already established? Sure. But the flexibility that you have right now should be your biggest advantage. So go take advantage of it. Go use that flexibility to sign enough players that are going to have a significant impact on what you do this season and, and feeling so grateful that jerry
10: didn't get rid of any of the young names that we had heard of and the rumors that you would mentioned after the season of the whit merrifield so yeah. like, would you have wanted whit merrifield last year and got rid of somebody like is a top prospect or no. something like
2: that no I, I think jerry's done a pretty good job of, of setting himself up for now the question is what do you do after the setup i don't have any issues with the setup i really don't could they have done things differently sure of course but for the most part, I, I think they've done a really good job of setting themselves up now for success. How do you take advantage of it? That's what Jerry's got to do next.
0: Now there's no matter between Jerry and ownership. That's one less person to tell Jerry no. If he sells his plan to those above him, it's a go. And myself and others are convinced that he thought he could do more going into last off season. Now I'm with Salk in the big scheme of things and where they were with the plan, the schedule, they didn't absolutely have to have Colton Wong. Not last year. It would have been nice but it wasn't an absolute necessity in a year that they were not counting on contending. I don't know if that would have precluded them from making one of the bigger moves in the infield this year, but I do know that you can always use pitching, and there really was no reason not to give Taiwan Walker a second year. On a lighter note that day, Salk, Justin, and Mora had a little fun getting over the manager of the year loss.
2: So he doesn't win manager of the year. What could he have won? We have some other awards that maybe Scott could have won this year. AL's most creative manager. Yes. Sure. How about AL manager most likely to quote Ted Lasso during a team meeting? You know he had to have done that this year, right?
10: <laughs> he had to have done it in a real team meeting because if he did it in the media, he had already practiced that. Who do you think Scott's favorite character from Ted Lasso is? Is it just Ted Lasso? It has to be just Ted Lasso. You think yeah. so? You identifies with that character way more than who's
11: your favorite character
2: in uh, Ted Lasso? It is. Yes. Who's your favorite character? His boss. I think she's great. I think she's a uh, she's hysterical. And the He's fact awesome. that she, like, made that transition from being the, like, for shame woman in Game of Thrones, I think just makes it even better. I also love Jason Sudeikis, so it's hard for me to look past that. AL manager most likely to be your dad. <laughs> <laughs> like, Scott wins that award going away. <laughs> AL manager most likely to volunteer to, as a crossing guard at an elementary school during the offseason? Seems like a good guy. I feel like he could do that. <laughs> he,
10: that. He's a he's neighborhood watch. He's out early in the morning saying hi to everybody getting their papers. I can, he, helping you get your
2: paper to your front door when it's raining. How obviously. about this award? And this one is very specific, but they do give it out. AL manager most likely to cry during Marley and Me. Or during movie. the post-game fireworks show. That's also emotional. Or during a particularly meaningful video review of a close play at first base. Oh, so, s- come on. Especially, or... especially if it's one
10: of his young players. <laughs> if it involves one
2: <laughs> just out there battling. You gotta give him credit.
1: He just loves those guys.
2: He's just out there. He just loves those
10: guys. 7.15, time for Need to Know. I thought of another award that Scott could win. Oh, good. Most likely to return his shopping cart at the grocery store. All the way back to the front? Like, all the way back to the door? it will probably take some other ones with him that people have left out there. He seems Nobody like a good guy. That. Nobody I, does yes, that. Yes, yes, people do that. They
2: don't leave it in the in like the spaces provided for you in the parking lot? No, I'm, you could do that,
10: sure. He'll return, oh, okay. it to the, he'll return it to the place that it's supposed to be. Whoa. Who doesn't? You're a jerk yeah. if you
3: don't return it to them. Totally.
10: There's a whole YouTube series on people who don't return their carts. It's called uh, CartNark. Here's the thing. But I
3: feel like those are, like... Those are the outsiders. I mean, I would assume that Scott Service and hopefully most of the Mariners players do that.
2: I would also hope so. <laughs> do you think Scott Service does his own grocery shopping? <laughs> I think so. For the You in, don't and- think those guys are all instant cart? Like just like they just like get all that stuff delivered nope. to their house. He enjoys his trip to Costco. So I enjoy my trips to the grocery store, so believe me, I can relate to that. But I think that used to happen more when before they moved, like before every parking lot in a grocery store had the like corral. For you to be able to leave your card in. I think people will be like, man, I'm not walking all the way back into the store. It's like 45 degrees and raining. I'm not going in there. I
10: used to work as a, we, well, we, I called myself a super box boy at the grocery store where super I worked. Super box boy. Because <laughs> box boy wasn't cool. Enough. I've had to be super box boy. And uh, I had to re- pick up carts. So that was part of the job. I also had to shovel the parking lot in the winter and uh, sweep it in the summer. Okay. I spent a lot of time uh-huh. in grocery store parking lots, and there's a lot of lazy people that could just take the extra 30 feet, walk it back, and help a kids day out. So did it
2: have a corral for the carts?
10: Not that a grocery store is too small.
2: All right. Well, so that's different. Again, no corral. I feel like well, people all People just push are them up to the front of the store. That was the thing. Yeah. Like, just like
10: push them up against the store. And, and like, then just kind of let it on. go. on.
2: Do you like trying to like do the thing where you like toss the cart at the end and like to try to get it to like land in exact like putting almost? Do you remember that old PGA commercial like that? These guys are good commercial. Had like some golfers who were like with a grocery cart in the um in the in the parking lot and they would like send it on a journey and it would like you know turn just the right amount in order to curl oh, right into the, into the parking yeah, exactly right into the corral <laughs> No, it's like, man these guys are good i
10: used to be really good about riding the shopping carts so i'd get running on it and jump on the back thing i could spin it and i could ride little wheelies i
2: was pretty good at shopping carts not that i want to go like too deep into the grocery cart thing but but the new, the new thing go. in grocery cart <laughs> seems to be the like short cart, yeah, and I'm all about it. Love the short cart. I, I mean, for somebody like me who goes grocery shopping a lot, I don't want to carry the thing, the basket with me, because if I'm getting like you know two gallons of milk and this and that, like. I don't want to carry that whole thing with me. Love the little cart. Oh,
3: I always just end up overloading that to the max and And then, then, (laughs) like, carrying two things on my side. I'm really bad about that. I'll avoid the cart at all costs. But I don't want the huge
2: cart, right? Because, like, I don't have enough stuff in it, so I just feel sort of ridiculous pushing around that whole big cart. But the little half cart... That thing is amazing. Phenomenal. It's the perfect size. Yes. And it's got little com- compartments everywhere for all the different types of food. I'm super OCD about it, too. Like, I got my soft stuff up top. I'll put my, like, larger <laughs> yep. drinks, milk, orange juice, oat milk for Avery. Like, all Leave that goes on the bottom, in the bottom. Right? Like, I've got my spots for everything. If I'm getting Spindrift for Heather, that goes in the compartment closest to me. Like... I've got my spots for everything, Do you man. bag your own groceries? Never. Oh. Absolutely not. There is somebody literally standing there to do the bagging. Not all the time. Well, well there is. That's literally their job. But I am not my, bagging the groceries. One of
10: my biggest pet peeves. I don't peeves work here. Is I? To be fair, I work at a grocery store and I love it. It's Tetris for me. But one of my biggest pet peeves is when there's a line and there's nobody to help bag groceries. It's busy. And you just stand there and make the cashier
2: do it? Absolutely.
10: Oh, you're that guy. Yeah, I am.
2: No, I have a different job. Do you also? I don't ask you to come in here and host my radio. Do you show also when not?
10: Do you also not hustle oh across the street when the crosswalk is? Hundred
2: percent hustle across the street.
10: You, okay, you do hustle. I'm polite, so okay, you well, are. You're
2: considerate of other people. You know what you give, in that you give the little like fake athletic run. The like you're ru- you look like you're running, but you're still moving at walking <laughs> speed. It's like yeah, I'm an athlete. I know how to run, but I'm just not going very fast while I'm doing it.
0: Get those elbows up, Mike. Now, at about this point, I would say we've had enough of Salk for one day, but he had a fantastic guest coming up in the next hour, so a reprieve of sorts as Jason Churchill gave his thoughts on the Mariners' offseason, which included another way the team could use their dollars to improve the roster.
2: Prospect insider, and we'll talk a little baseball. Jason, it's been forever. How you doing, buddy? It has. It's good to talk to you, Mr. Salk. It's good to talk to you as well. I'm excited. It's a cool offseason, man. I mean, there's so many... There's so many possibilities for the Mariners right now and so many different directions that they can go. So I I do want to ask you about a couple of specific players, but just sort of let's start more broadly. What's the goal this offseason? What do they need to accomplish?
12: In general terms, I just think of this as an offseason where they have to significantly improve the major league roster. And I know that's super general and maybe a little more general than what you were looking for. But I think if we get to April or we get to the start of the season, whenever that happens to be, if the roster, if you can look at the roster and say, wow, they really did improve their roster significantly between the end of 2021 and now. I think there'll be some level of success. Obviously there are a lot of degrees in between there. Um, You know, we can have that conversation when the time comes, but if you're Jerry Depoto, and I've been kind of preaching it this way all off season so far, you can't, you know, when the music stops, you have to be sitting in a chair and that, that goes for adding to the offense, improving the rotation, you know, improving the depth uh, of the club as well. I mean, Jerry's talking about how he thinks the the bench players are already here. Well, if you're talking about the bench player you had last year, it's probably not a great answer. So maybe he's talking about some of the starters he had at the end of the last year turning into bench players for next season, which would improve the depth and start looking like a playoff team in the future.
2: Yeah. And then you start looking at specific spots where they need help. Obviously, you know, infield is going to be a pretty key one. They lose their third baseman. They had some issues at second base. So you need one, if not two infielders, You know, do you think that any of these big five shortstops are a realistic possibility?
12: I do. I I, I kind of crossed out Carlos Correa, Mm -hmm. Javier Baez, and Corey Seager, you know, myself. I don't expect any of the three to engage with Seattle or vice versa, really. Uh, If the market caves on Javier Baez and Seattle's done something else at third base, I could see Baez becoming an option. But I think as things are kind of opening up, I don't think any of those three are really on the radar in either direction, player to team, team to player. But I do think Marcus Simeon, I think Marcus Simeon's their top target, and I think Trevor Story's a realistic option for Seattle. I think Story would consider playing second base and playing in Seattle if the numbers are right. And I think that's the big question. Where's the market actually headed this winter? What does Marcus Simeon's market actually look like? We know there are going to be at least three, four, five teams involved. Are we talking about a five-year deal? Or are we talking about an eight- or a nine-year deal for a 31-year-old because that really starts to look on the high side a little like that Robinson Cano deal a couple of years back when Seattle went to the 10 years on a 31, 32-year-old player. And I, I just don't think any club's going to do that, and I don't think Seattle's going to do that. But where does that actually end? Where does the market start? Where does it end for guys like Semyon and Trevor Story, especially a guy like Story who did not have a real good 2021 season?
2: Yeah. Talk to me about story. I think a lot of the focus has been on Simeon and for good reason. He, he's like the West Coast guy. Right. Been in the division. Uh, he's a little bit older. So maybe there's just a little bit more of an uh, like an accessibility. There's a it seems like a better chance he might be willing to come here. But I, I, story's the one that I think I can't figure out the most. I'm with you on the other three. I don't think they're realistic targets. I can't quite like, get a, a handle around whether or not Trevor story makes sense. Or what kind of risk is involved with him?
9: Yeah, it's
12: a tough one because, uh, you know, we've seen players come out of Coors, come out of Colorado, and struggle elsewhere. We've seen players come out of Colorado and actually do really well. Nolan Arenado, DJ LeMahieu in recent years mm-hmm. have been fine. But Trevor's story is a little bit different because over the course of his career, he actually has struggled on the road. You know, uh, I think he's 50 points in batting average lower on the road versus at home. I think when you look at power numbers, you see the difference. I mean, if you're a WRC plus guy, uh, he's 50 points better at Coors and it's slightly below average on the road when you head away from Coors field. The thing is, we don't know how Story would react as a hitter to not having to have the two different approaches, the one at Coors and the one on the road. And that's the big thing. And I think that's where that's where. Not necessarily scouting, but that's where the analysts in that front office are going to come into play. They're going to look at that swing and then look at, you know, the hard hit balls and how many times he hits a line drive. How many times Story hits the ball the other way and just kind of spread that out over T-Mobile Park and say, hey, all we need to do is get Story in here and say, just hit, man. It's the same thing every time. It's the same thing at T-Mobile as it is down in Oakland, as it is in San Francisco, as it is down in Anaheim and just have him do one thing. And maybe you actually, maybe story actually sees that as a way to kind of get back to where he was a couple of years ago when he was hitting 280 plus with 30 home runs. And, you know, that's the Trevor story that if you're Seattle, you want, you want to go get that guy. And, you know, he's a really good athlete too. He's actually a pretty good shortstop. I don't think he's as good as JP Crawford, but, If you're going to play that at second base, you're going to you're most likely going to get average to above average offense and you have an opportunity to get well above average to get plus offense at that position with the Trevor story. But you're right, he is a little bit difficult to figure out because you just don't know how he's going to react. To not having to have his course field approach and swing. You
2: know listen to Jason Churchill, Prospect Insider, uh, with, with obviously really great deep dive analysis into where the Mariners can go and some of uh some of the options that are out there. Let's say you're able to pluck one of those two guys to play second base. I still think that's a challenge, but let's say you're able to pluck one of those two guys, you put him at second base, you still have a major hole at third base. I'm not a Kyle Seeger fan. Um, but I recognize the fact that he was a stalwart there for a long time, both offensively and defensively. And even if you're all into the new fangled stats, and, and I think there's a lot of relevance there, 100 RBI is still hard to replace. I mean, there's still some relevance to a guy that drove in 100 runs. If it's not available in free agency, and maybe it is, maybe then Chris Bryant's an option or whatever, what do you make of either Jose Ramirez from Cleveland or Matt Chapman from Oakland?
12: Yeah, Ramirez is going to cost you, you know, a a pretty penny. And this is when we're talking, you know, like because if you're Cleveland, you don't have to trade him. So when you're the Mariners and you're trying to pry away a player like Jose Ramirez, who's probably one of the top five position players in the American League, you know, what's that going to cost you? I mean, obviously you want to cross Julio Rodriguez off that list, but what else is Cleveland going to look for? Look at what Cleveland has done uh, in, in the past when making significant deals. They've often gone after pitching. And this doesn't mean guys that are down your prospect list. This means guys that are in your top five, in your top eight. This means Matt Brash. This means George Kirby, most likely. They're absolutely going to ask and probably even try to demand Logan Gilbert. And if you're Seattle, you have to be out. If we're talking about Kirby and and Gilbert, it kind of defeats the purpose to some level about building this team for sustainable success. If you're going to trade, you know, big time assets, especially on the mound, For a guy like Jose Ramirez, I'm interested to see what Cleveland tries to do with Ramirez, whether they want to just make another go of it and then maybe try to trade him in July or do something next year. Uh, If they trade him this winter, it's going to be really, really expensive. I just don't know that that's going to materialize. So how about Chapman? Chapman, Chapman that's
2: a much more realistic possibility to me.
12: I think you're right. Was he 29 in April? Probably makes 20 to 25 million over the next two years. Uh, if there are signs he can get back to 2018, 2019 levels at the plate, there's actually upside there. And then going to the A's and talking about him makes a ton of sense. Um, it, you know, if he's the second best offensive piece over the winter that the club adds, it's a really good get. I know there's some questions there. Uh, I don't have his numbers in front of me, but he wasn't great last year, struggled a little bit. In 2020, obviously, the hip thing was a problem for him. But he's really, really interesting. And, and in some ways, is kind of a right-handed Kyle Seager, at least Kyle Seager in his prime. And you just kind of hope, hey, can we can we actually get his prime offensive years out of him at 29, 30, 31 years old? And I guess two years left before uh, before he gets free. Agency. And if you look at him as a free agent, yeah, and obviously, it's going to cost you in trade. 20 to 25 million over two years is a bargain, even if Chapman doesn't hit much more than he did a year ago. Do you realize That's Chapman? A really good defensive
2: player. I'm, I'm not necessarily. I mean, I don't understand entirely how WAR is is created, et cetera, But and I know that some of this is going to come from his defense. But in his down year last year, where Matt Chapman's been sort of ripped up and down, and he's going to make, as you said, 25 million over two years. Kyle Seager's WAR was what 2.0 last year. His was over three and a half. Yeah. he was a he was a win and a half better almost twice the player of Kyle Seager last year in his god
1: awful year
12: right there was essentially the same offensive player it's about a league average offensive player now they they get there they actually get there in in, in similar ways i think Chapman was 210 314 with 27 home runs uh in, in 150 games but yeah it, Chapman is a significantly better defensive player than Kyle Seager ever was now if you compare his defense in, in 2021 to to Seeger's in 2021, uh, we're not we're on a completely different planet here, with Matt Chapman having a significant advantage. So you get to keep that very reliable and then some third baseman over there with very similar offense, and there could be more offense there. I mean, Seeger and and, and Chapman, it's remarkable how similar that their careers could actually be. Obviously, Seeger's played a lot longer, but Chapman hasn't had that like MVP. 160 wrc plus year where he was like 300 400 600 with 35 home runs he's always been kind of a relatively lower average guy hit in the 240s i think he has one year where he hit 270 or better it's very kyle seager not a real high obp guy but has some pretty decent power years i think Chapman hit 36 home runs in the in 2019 so there are some similarities there yeah. it's just dependent on cost i mean the A's are really, really interesting and there's a lot of A's players that we could talk about here, but, uh, the A's are different too. So that it makes for a really interesting conversation about whether the A's and the Mariners can, can match up in trade. Cause, the, you know, we go back to the Cleveland thing with Jose Ramirez. Well, you know, you're going to trade a guy with more than one year of uh, of control left. It's going to cost you. Mm-hmm. But the A's are just very, I'll just say the word, the A's are weird when it comes to this. They will make bulk deals sometimes because they want to take more shots at getting the return. And that is probably exactly the route Jerry DiPoto would like to take instead of saying, hey, here's Logan Gilbert or here's George Kirby.
2: So talking to Jason Churchill, we got like a minute left here, but give me some, some name. I know you're high on what the Mariners have done with their farm system here in the last few years and what Jerry's done to restock this thing. Give me some names that, that aren't you know the big couple that are either going to make a difference very soon for Seattle from the minor league level and coming up to the majors and we will have some success, or somebody that Jerry could target elsewhere in the league that we haven't been talking about.
12: Yeah, uh, when when you're talking about from the farm system, I I think a guy like Brandon Williamson gets overlooked a little bit. I've been talking about that quite a bit on on my podcast. Um, Relatively close to the big leagues. Um, He sat 91 to 94, but the club thinks there's more there, and if they can get to a point where a 6'6", 215-pound left-hander is throwing downhill with – you know, four average or better pitches in a 93 to 96 mile an hour fastball. That's a pretty good arm. That probably sits in the milliliter rotation, but perhaps even better. And that's something right now that it's difficult to project, but they just think there's more there in the fastball. And they really like uh, the metrics on all of his pitches. So he's a guy to kind of keep an eye on. I have a ranked number seven right now, but in most other organizations, he would be top four or five. That's a pretty good left-hander there to, uh, to kind of toss into the conversation. As far as like looking out and, and, like I think we've, we've learned with Jerry DiPoto that when you're trying to look around the league for things that, that the Mariners might be able to do, you have to turn over every rock <laughs> uh, because that's exactly what they're going to do is turn over every single rock, probably rocks we're not even thinking of. So I've actually had a difficult time as a guy who literally stares at <laughs> spreadsheets and tries to look for these sorts of things. It's really hard to find something that hasn't been talked about. I, I've, I've been talking about the red starters for a couple of years. I think Sonny Gray makes sense. I think Luis, Luis Castillo makes sense. I think Malley makes sense. Um, so keep an eye on that. And keep an eye on Cincinnati for a lot of reasons because uh, they're trying to cut payroll. Um, they're letting Castellanos walk. <laughs> Uh, if you could do something creative, and I'll throw this at you, Mike, you've probably seen this before, but it's been suggested. If you're making a deal with the Reds and you're trying to get Luis Castillo, for example, that's not really going to help them cut payroll that much. But if you're willing to take on a good portion of, if not all of the remaining money on Mike Moustakis' deal, you might be able to add both of those players, have a league average third baseman in Mike Moustakis, add a number two, number three starter in Luis Castillo, and not have to pay the profit, I love that. Right, that
2: you otherwise would i love that i would love to see them do something along those lines use that payroll for good to bring in the kind of players you need without giving up the other assets that you don't want to jason i can sit here and talk about this with you all day we got to run uh you can find jason a prospect insider on twitter or dot com. listen to the podcast read what he writes it's really good stuff great content for every mariners fan it has been too long my friend we will do it again soon okay
12: Hey, appreciate it, Mac. Wow. There you
2: go. There's Jason Churchill, who was one of the first people I got to know when I moved to Seattle here uh, all those years ago.
0: Sign me up. Use those dollars. Saw clearly on board and looking for that deal where you take on the undesirable contract rather than give up the top prospect. He'll get Jerry Depoto's thoughts on this in just a bit. First, however, back to Jake and Stacy, who turned their focus from free agents to possible trade targets.
3: I've heard Marcus Simeon's name thrown around so much more than Trevor Story. And for good reason, right? Guy from the West Coast. It makes sense. He might want to come back. I was talking with Salk earlier who said, I don't know, I could see the Dodgers making a move for a guy like Simeon. So what if Story ends up being the person the Mariners have to go for? We know they don't want to move on from JP at short. What do you guys think about Story?
1: Uh, Story is very intriguing to me. The only thing that makes me nervous about him, to be honest with you, is the whole Difference between the type of player he is at, at, at Coors Field in road in first, Colorado yep. versus when he's on the road away away from the thin air and and the difference there. But quite frankly, still that's 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 still better than what what we've had here with the Mariners. And and I I do believe that Trevor Story eventually adjusts. I I like the talent. I think it would be a, a very nice addition. Um, and so I wouldn't, I absolutely wouldn't hate it. I wouldn't be mad at it. Curtis, what what do, what do you think about that with with Trevor's story?
5: Yeah, I wouldn't hate it either. I think he is going to be moved off of shortstop in his future. He's dealing with some arm issues, which is why there's that possibility that he comes to Seattle or or another team and, and is not the shortstop going forward. Uh, you bring up his splits from home and road at home at Coors Field. Uh, He's got an OPS over 900, 972, and then away from Coors Field at 752. So he's about league average away from Coors Field. Yeah, it's not amazing. You bring up the Dodgers being interested in Marcus Semyon. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen at all. They've got Trey Turner at shortstop, and they've got Gavin Lux at second base, two guys who are are young. Trey Turner is one of the most exciting players in baseball. Gavin Lux is going to be just 24 years old, and he played a lot this last season for the Dodgers. I don't think they're in the market for a middle so infielder there at all. So then some West Coast
11: teams that might be vying for Simeon?
5: Well, we heard from Divish the other day, Ryan Divish, the Seattle Times, that the Giants could be very much in play for Marcus Simeon. Right. That, to me, I think is much more concerning than anything the Dodgers could possibly because do in the free agency. He, because he's from the Bay Area. Yeah, he's he played for the A's, he's from Oakland, San Francisco is just a trip across the bridge away from where he grew up. I believe he played at Cal Berkeley as well. So, I mean, he's Bay Area through and through. The Giants are just coming off a 107-win season, too. Which which they
1: did
3: with a lot of older players. Yeah. I love so much.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It it is incredible, but also how much much of it are the Giants going to be able to keep together? How much of it are the Giants going to be able to build upon going into this next year? They were a big, nice surprise, and it was a lot of fun watching the team but how much of that is going to be able to be sustainable, right? that That's my question when it comes to the Giants. Um, Curtis, you might have a better answer on that than than I do, but I, I almost view that as the Mariner situation. It's great that they won 90 games. It's great that the Giants got to 100 wins, but is that something that they are easily going to be able to replicate if you don't have Kevin Gosman, if you, yeah, right. I mean, just you go, you well, go they down won't have the list Buster Posey. They
3: he just retired. Posey, and they also are still in a division where it's like, I don't know if you're going to be able to be as lucky staying ahead of the Dodgers this time.
5: Around. Well, I think the Padres are due for a bounce back next season.
3: Yeah,
1: You've got, such a surprise, especially man. now Bob Melvin's going to be the manager. Yeah, Exactly.
3: Um, let me jump to the to the next one here, so we can cover a few of these guys. This one, uh, Jason Churchill talking about Matt Chapman as a potential fit.
12: I, I think you're right. Was he 29 in April? Probably makes 20 to 25 million over the next two years. Uh, if there are signs he can get back to 2018, 2019 levels of the plate, there's actually upside there. And then going to the A's and talking about him makes a ton of sense. Um, it, you know, if he's the second best offensive piece over the winter that the club adds. It's a really good get. I know there's some questions there. Uh, I don't have his numbers in front of him, but he wasn't great last year. Struggled a little bit in 2020. Obviously, the hip thing was a problem for him. But he's really, really interesting. And, and in some ways, he's kind of a right-handed Kyle Seager, at least Kyle Seager in his prime.
3: DePoto's made it clear he's interested in a couple guys from the A's.
1: Yeah, he has. He, he and, and honestly, any one of those pitchers, <laughs> I'm okay with that. I mean, if you're if you're not having to give up big trade pieces for those guys – um, which I don't think you would have to pieces that you're you're looking at and going, oh man, I can't believe that they parted yeah. away with, with that. I, I I would be totally fine with that. But it, when it comes to Matt Chapman, I think the the key aspect of that though with, with Churchill that he said to me, it has to be the second or third best bat that you add. Matt Chapman cannot it, be it, it cannot be the best bat that you add. It it cannot be it can't be even yeah. a close. It can't be a close second, in my opinion. There has to be a impact bat, a significant impact bat, and if you add Matt Chapman, then I do believe that that would be a very nice addition for you. And the reason why it's it's great as well is because he fits into the culture and the mindset of the Mariners team, which very much is a a defensive-minded organization and and continuing to have great infield play. So if you add, let's say... All right, we're able to go down fantasy world here. Uh you can add Marcus Simeon and then you add Matt Chapman to that. I would be very very happy with looking at that infield heading into next season.
3: Uh Church already looked at this and said it, but Curtis, I know you said he's basically a younger Kyle Seager. A well,
5: right-handed Kyle right-handed Seager, Kyle Seager. And, younger, and younger, yeah. And younger. Both Chapman will true. be 29 this season. Right. Uh and you look at his numbers last year hit 210 with a 314 on base. 27 home runs, struck out 200 times. I mean, that's just – that is a very Kyle Seeger kind of stat line. Um, yet last year was his worst year with the bat. Um, in his career, he's two forty-three hitter with an eight hundred eight OPS. He's a guy that does put the ball in play uh, a little more frequently than Kyle Seeger does, at least over the course of his career. And, and defensively, he is maybe the best defensive third baseman in baseball. And, look, if you put Chapman on the same side of the field as J.P. Crawford – that becomes the best side of the infield maybe in the American league. And maybe there's an, an, an possibility of adding Marcus Simeon, another gold Glover at second base. You've got Ty you France at first base. Yeah. That, that infield is just vacuums all four, all, all four spots.
3: I mm-hmm. know some people are saying it might be a mistake to uh, overlook some of the top tier shortstops and keep JP there. We will get to that conversation later. Um, is there another third baseman you guys would rather have? I know Bryant is, has been looked at as both more a little more versatile and outfield guy, too, so you yeah. can maybe include him, but there might be another
1: guy. I mean, that's the unique part about Chris Bryant. I mean, you could still legitimately still potentially add him to this team, even if you did go down the road with Matt Chapman and Marcus Simeon. Because he Make could, him your fourth outfield. Yes. He I mean, you could absolutely do that. And would anybody be mad at that? I, I certainly wouldn't no. be. I think that would be the coup of the century. Uh, for for the Mariners. And so that's what's so unique about Chris Bryan and, and kind of his flexibility and, and what he could bring to the table. But you ask about third base, I mean, it just kind of goes to perfectly uh, lead into uh, another topic of conversation, which is uh, somebody we've mentioned on this show, which is Jose Ramirez. Um, cut number 14, Jason Churchill talking about that.
12: So when you're the Mariners and you're trying to pry away a player like Jose Good Ramirez, luck. who's probably one of the top five position players in the American League, You know, what's that going to cost you? I mean, obviously you want to cross Julio Rodriguez off that list, but what else is Cleveland going to look for? Look at what Cleveland has done uh, in, in the past when making significant deals. They've often gone after pitching, and this doesn't mean guys that are down your prospect list. This means guys that are in your top five, in your top eight. This means Matt Brash. This means George Kirby, most likely. They're absolutely going to ask and probably even try to demand Logan Gilbert. And if you're Seattle, you have to be out if we're talking about Kirby and, and Gilbert, it kind of defeats the purpose to some level.
3: I agree with that last part. Like, there's a certain. I think there's more than just uh, Rodriguez that I wouldn't trade.
1: Really? So, if, if it came down to trading both of those guys, you'd say no way at walking away yeah. from that deal. Yes. Curtis, what, what would you say?
5: Boy, uh. Yeah, if it It came down to to trading
3: otherworldly talent, where the other team is losing that
5: trade. Yeah, if it came down to trading Julio, I would say no. I would no with Julio. No. Yeah, if it came down to both
3: Kirby and Hancock,
5: if I'm or Gilbert. I would would not say no to a trade involving Emerson Hancock. Both. Uh, George Kirby to a lesser extent, I would say, no, I'd be a little more open to dealing him than I would Logan Gilbert, just cause we kind of know what Logan Gilbert could be. I mean, we saw what his, his ceiling was in that Yankee start earlier this season. Yeah. Um, but Hancock, I would be more than okay with dealing. I I'd- think you have a ton of organizational depth at starting pitcher. You're going to have to tap into it at some point. You can't fall in love with all these guys because not every single one of them is going to pan out. Just as we yeah. saw the last time, the Mariners had an incredible wave of young pitching talent with Taiwan Walker, James Paxton, and Danny Holton. Yep. Danny Holton was viewed as the sure need to thing. talk about Danny
1: Holton right Thank now. Danny exactly was, nice was viewed day. as the I'm sure thing. To have he a never That's nice exactly day, why you can't sit there with these cards and keep them close to your vest. No, I'm not. I'm saying this just up.
3: don't trade too many
1: of no, them. I agree with you, but the other one that you probably would have to look at, and this is where I would love to see what the reaction would be. Is I don't think it would come down to two pitchers. I don't think it would come down to George Kirby and Emerson Hancock. Here's the deal: take it or leave it. It probably would look something more like Emerson Hancock and Noel V. Marte.
5: That's yeah, because you're losing a, more of the a, stud you're we a stud infielder.
1: You're going to want to require a stud infielder. infielder. Yeah. Exactly. Then fine. Then, fine. then fine. That that to me is the conversation. So I, if it came down to that, I would have to say, yeah, I probably would do the deal because of jose ramirez where he's at age wise the impact that he can have for your team in his prime years and it's in the years it fits into the profile and the mold of when you want to start competing which is starting next year and the years after that so you're you're going and giving proven commodity and you're having to give up you know potential talent um so you're going to have to part ways if you want to go and make a splash uh, a trade like that guess what you're gonna have to give away some of those pieces and have to and, and be comfortable living with it
0: we shall see hey is that a train i hear all
3: right right, two aboard this one next type train into the station going mlb with this one specifically the mariners who seem like they're willing to spend this off season all right now they need an elite infielder and uh either someone at second or to replace Seeger at third jerry depoto says he wants to add two bats They seem out on Carlos Correa or any other player who wants to stick at shortstop. That leaves Marcus Simeon, who can play second base as the best option right now with cash. Pressure mounting from fans, hungry for the playoffs. It's very possible a deal gets done. This is the hype train. Tell me if you're boarding the Mariners land Marcus Simeon.
1: I'm going to get on this hype train. I just I really believe it's going to happen. I think it's. They have put themselves in a corner on this one when it comes to Marcus Simeon. The Giants certainly are someone that I am fearful of in terms of competing with Marcus Simeon and his services. But when push comes to shove, I just think that the Mariners are younger. They've got a better outlook for the next few years and and, uh, an up-and-coming team that Marcus Simeon can uh, can make a big-time splash for. And if you don't win the MVP this year... Certainly, if you have a season that you had this year, or relatively close to it, and the Mariners go to the playoffs, probably winning the MVP. So I think it's a good I think it's it's a good wagon to hitch yourself to, and and that to me is why I think Marcus Simeon is eventually going to sign here because the Mariners are going to outbid the the san francisco giants
3: all right jake says yes he's boarding that train the hype train is the mariners landmark is simeon curtis are you boarding
1: with
5: any free agent that is available money should not be a factor when it comes to the mariners any dollar amount should be fine you can afford literally any dollar amount that any player asks for in free agency the real sticking point is that years we know jerry depoto not a fan of contracts that go beyond about five six years You know what, Marcus Simeon, he might be the kind of player that is worth a contract that is five or six years deep. And he's got a much longer track record than a lot of these guys in free agency. Uh, You know, you look at, and he's stayed healthy throughout most of his career. Yeah, he had 45 home runs a year ago. I am going to get on board this train. I think the Mariners do get Marcus Simeon. I'm not comfortable with the fact that they have pretty much put all of their the eggs, all their free agency eggs into the Semien basket. I would much rather have them have a lot of fires going on right now rather than just one big one because, look, if he doesn't sign here, it's a failure of an offseason. That's right, I said
3: Woo. it. Woo! Uh, <laughs> you guys are going to hate Whoa. me for this one. I'd love to will it into existence. I'd love to see him here for the Mariners, but... I'm not bored in this dream.
1: Oh, come on. Why? I think Why? there be some
3: other contenders here on the West Coast. We talked about, Curtis mentioned earlier, the Giants potentially being in on that one, uh, looking for a shortstop, looking to get back there. It's in the West Coast. It's where he grew up. And uh, I think that the Mariners are going to have to really pay up for guys. Mariners fans might be excited about where this team can go and might be able to see the future, but a lot of free agents can't yet. And they're going to need to either see you pony up a lot of money, which the Mariners might be willing to do, or see you give them a long-term deal, which, like Curtis said, Jerry Depoto probably not willing to do. Mm. Uh, I just see him signing with a team uh, at 31, which isn't old, per se, but uh, at 31 where he thinks he can uh, touch the postseason, get to the postseason, and is maybe uh, a more assured of a visit there.
1: Oh, ye of little faith. I know, bait.
3: I know, I know. Sorry. I've, 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 uh, I've been burned before. So I'm I'm gonna go Very no on this fair. one. I'm playing Very it safe. Fair. All right, next hype train. I'm gonna stick with the Mariners here. We have back-to-back Mariners hype trains, you guys. So this one coming into the station, also about shortstop. Now, the Mariners, I mentioned earlier, focusing on Marcus Simeon because they've already ruled out a guy like Carlos Correa, not just because he's going to be wildly expensive. He'll probably get the biggest deal out of all of these shortstops, but because Mm -hmm. Jerry DiPoto has assured J.P. Crawford that you're our guy at shortstop. J.P. Crawford, in my humble opinion, uh, was robbed of a gold glove award this year. He has a great glove. Uh, in the field, the bat is fine. He gets on base; it's okay. He's not a big home run hitter, though. So here's the hype train. Tell me if you're boarding. It's a mistake for the Mariners to be sure of JP Crawford at shortstop.
1: Okay, I'm going to say or to
3: refuse to move JP Crawford from shortstop.
1: I right now, I'm going to say no. You're okay, I'm not boarding, I'm the, not hype boarding the hype train. But but TBD on this because uh, there is a report out there that the Yankees are not interested in going after Carlos Correa. So why is this TBD for me? Because of that news? If you eventually see Carlos Correa go to somebody that is not a blue-blooded you know, MLB program and organization, like the Yankees, like the Red Sox, like the Dodgers, uh, somebody that really, truly is going to compete and spend some big-time dollars, that you know that if you get a bidding war, you're probably not going to have a great chance against, so why even go for it, if he goes to somebody like, I don't know, like like Detroit, the Detroit Tigers or something like that, where the Mariners absolutely could have competed for his services, then I'm going to be mad, then I'm going to be upset, and this whole conversation about keep, keeping J.P. Crawford at short, despite having a chance on Carlos Correa, that would be Reuniting absolutely ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous, uh, so right now... it. I say no because I don't think Carlos Correa is realistic for the Mariners, but uh, I don't know. It it looks like it might be.
0: And that's the thing. Carlos Correa is not realistic for the Mariners, so I have no problem with DePoto saying J.P. is their shortstop. And what's funny here is that for all the criticism that DePoto's been getting of late and not being player-friendly, here he's putting his guy first, and that's not for his benefit. That's for J.P.'s benefit. They love him as a leader, so why not pump him up? Why not tell him, hey, you are our guy? Mariners aren't going to go out and give a Robinson Cano-type deal or most likely worst, Carlos Correa or any other player. It's just not going to happen. I think it's a relatively low risk in committing to that one position. I think he's the only player you would move JP for. He's not coming, so why not tell JP that? I don't think it's a huge deal. And yeah, that hype train, let's go ahead and put the brakes on it, please. Back to Wyman and Bob, and on Wednesday, a little news.
2: Well, the Mariners make some additions to their 40-man roster for some Rule 5 protection today. Ray Kerr, left-handed pitcher, was added, as well as Alberto Rodriguez, who is one of their top 10 prospects. And the big one, of course, Julio Rodriguez on the 40-man roster. There is still one 40-man spot open.
7: Yeah, we'll we'll see how—I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be interested to see how careful they are with Julio because he is their prize. He is the— the gem of the organization, as they used to talk about, Jesus Montero in New York. The gem.
8: Oh, please don't
7: do that. That's, that was the – I mean, that's the pride. He's the one. He's the one. So how careful are they going to be? How close is he? Are they going to be – you know, are they going to treat him with kid gloves? Let's really make sure he's ready. We don't want to break him. Uh, we don't want to, you know, do anything that's going to hurt his, his development. Uh, I think we talked about it last year with Jared Kelnick. Had they been in better health in the outfield, Kelnick probably would have been sent down again. After the first time, um, so he was up here out of necessity more than, hey, he's earned it. So I'm just going to be curious how differently or how careful they are with, with Julio.
8: I, I wish I could have seen what made Jesus Montero. I wish I could have seen him at that point Power. that
7: made him the bright, The, the gem of star. the Yankees organization, yeah, because yeah. we God. didn't see it here. I know, couldn't, man. Couldn't catch, couldn't run. Couldn't Jul- play first
8: base. <laughs> yeah, Julio Rodriguez, I feel like, I mean, you know, the 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 talk for so long was, was Kelnick. Then you finally see Kelnick, but Julio is like this, uh, I, I can't wait to see him. Yeah. It's like he's this mystical being that we don't know anything about. And, you know, and it's going to be fun to get to know him because we kind of got to know what Kelnick's about. And, you know, when you see the, these young guys come up, you don't know what kind of personality they're going to be. I mean Julio Rodriguez could be one of these guys that's like Felix or whatever that everybody just
7: loves and yeah
8: yeah so he's got a great person I've seen it's a couple exciting.
7: interviews with him really good personality though I like that so we'll be careful with him let's let's treat him handle him with care
0: to Thursday morning we go on the weekly Jerry DePoto show where Mike Salt got to the heart of the matter and just where the Mariners were in the process of adding a free agent. And he also got his thoughts on taking on bigger contracts in trade. Of course, he had to warm him up with a topic away from the offseason first.
2: Jerry was drafted there. I mean, Jerry started his career there. Jerry DePoto, good morning, Jerry. How are you? How are you? Good morning.
4: I'm popping in late to the conversation, but sounds like we might be talking about Cleveland, Ohio.
2: We are. Do you see uh, they're officially changing the name tomorrow? They'll become the Guardians. Yeah,
4: it's it's an adjustment for me, but I think even just talking through it with uh, or chatting about it with the Indians people, I think, or Guardians people, they invite the change. They they think it was uh, long overdue and is going to be very welcome.
2: I, I forgot that you had started your career there, and uh, you were kind of traded with some fun names in the in the first trade of your career. Jeremy Burnitz, right? You were dealt for Burnitz and uh, also traded with Paul Bird, who had that double-handed old-school wind-up. You were around some kind of interesting people then.
4: Yeah, I would do it. I, I associate myself with interesting people in roll.
2: <laughs> Paul Bird's delivery to this day cracks me up. Did, was he doing that that early in his career?
4: No, you know, I, I met Birdie in 1990. He was uh, drafted, or 91, drafted out of LSU. And he was very conventional. And, uh, you know, he, he spent uh, a little longer in the minor leagues than, than he maybe would have preferred. And he was looking for something to add deception. And he came up with it. He said, I'm just going to try to fire up a, a Satchel page look. <laughs> and, and it worked. <laughs> and he had a great
2: career. He had a really long career. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, how was San Diego or, or Carlsbad? What did you take out of your time with all of your peers? Uh, wonderful,
4: uh, you know sunny talking baseball, and my takeaway was that there's uh you know the the market is moving and I, and I think you can see that in the first couple of weeks of November here, uh, especially with with some of the action this week with free agents and that's, it, you did get a sense uh, while we were in San Diego that there was a uh, a a higher rate of uh, of speed to the to the way the market was moving then is typically the case in early November, which okay. I think is it it's both a good and a fun thing
2: well I, and is that the sense of urgency with this December first potential lockout deadline looming?
4: You know I'm sure it's something to do with it in the background, but it you know I know for us and for the the teams that we were associated with, it, and even the the player reps that we met with while in San Diego and that we've talked about since. Where everyone is going about this as if it's business as usual, and uh, it's a, it hasn't really changed. It is moving at a, at a quicker speed though, and you know that's not disappointing for us because that, that that lands right in our breadbasket, actually.
2: <laughs> Do you feel like you're close to anything right now?
4: Uh, I can't say that I feel close to anything, but we are. We've made progress on a couple of trade talks, and we have made what I think is we have we have made. Real progress in in getting in front of the right free agents. Now, those things can come together very quickly or they can just die on the vine and hopefully we're able to continue to, to push them forward.
2: What does that mean when you say real progress on getting in front of the right free agents? What What is I'm not sure what that means. It
4: means sitting down face to face with the players that we are interested in sitting down with. You know, that's not always easy to do because you've got 30 teams vying for, for time and, and each free agent, his family members, especially as you, you get up uh, on close to the holidays at each sit down meeting is you're committing, you know, a day to, to that team. And, and that's a, a, a pretty daunting thing when you've got family coming in holidays and, you know that's part of you know this early market that I think is is intriguing, and and we have you know more than a handful of of live meetings set up, and mm-hmm. and hopefully between now and and uh, shortly after Thanksgiving, we see you know the next step, which is is starting to to make progress on negotiating deals.
2: Yeah. So does that so those meetings you're talking about the actual meeting with the player does that come before or after a meeting with the agent?
4: Uh, we've already met with the agents, so part of our trip down to san diego you know justin myself tim stanton our director of baseball operations all sat down with the the player reps for what i would call our our top targets and you know walk through basics general understandings of what their their expectations were more term of contract than than actual dollar amount and and interest level in seattle what we're doing that's your first chance to pitch the city of Seattle, what we're doing as a team, the the, the corner we believed we've turned. Uh, and, and we were approached by more than a couple of agents who had clients who thought what was happening in Seattle was interesting and wanted to sit down and talk with us, which is also a really fun and new thing for us. That's not something that, that has happened consistently through the years.
2: Yeah, it's got to be really exciting, right? I mean, you're, you're having these conversations with with players that you get to identify. What about, you mentioned the trade market. We, we spent some time yesterday talking about, on our show, just two different types of trades, right? One where you're giving up some of your better assets, younger assets, in order to acquire a really good player uh, who's maybe at the major league level versus trades in which you're maybe willing to take on more unwanted salary from another team in order to get a player without having to give up in, as much in terms of uh in terms of your own young assets are you looking at all of those types of deals how do those how do those tend to break down
4: we are right? we are looking at all those and frankly been in, in the early stages of this rebuild so if we flash back to You know, 2019, 2020, but but especially 2019. You know, some of those deals, the second of which you mentioned, you know, the the deals where you're maybe taking on larger contracts and we're effectively bringing in veteran players who may fit, you know, may no longer fit the team they're with, but allows us access to, to you know younger players or prospects we're trying to develop. We did a little of that in 2019 and. And you know, it's those are not easy deals to make. Uh, I, I think of it, it's something that's that's you know widely discussed among prospect types, or I know on in the blogosphere, it, it's thrown around like, we should do this. It, those aren't easy deals to do, right? mostly because there's there's a lot of money attached to to a player, and generally speaking, the, the club who's trading that player doesn't want to trade they're better prospects in order to move the, the contract. So there's it, it, those are a little uh, more difficult, but we're open to them in the, to the extent that they exist. And as far as, as acquiring players, you know, right now our focus is on acquiring players to fill more specific needs than maybe we have in, in the last couple of years. We feel like we've established a core of players that makes sense for us moving forward that have done a great job in developing over these last couple of years who i think you know proved on the field last year that we are uh, ready to take that next step. So we're not looking to to go replace those players and and that's one of the the nuances of actually building a roster versus you know the 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 idea of who's a better player a or b because you can mm-hmm continue to trade out for the, for the better player. And you may not become a better team. And our focus is on, on filling the holes to make ourselves a better team.
2: So, so it's an interesting one, right? It's not unlike this sort of uh, general debate we get in a draft, whether it's a baseball draft, football draft of best available versus player that fits the position you want, you know, baseball draft, I would assume you're almost always going after best available, right? Just because it's so long before that player ends up coming in and helping your team, but but at this point, it sounds like you you really you really got to focus on specifics with where your organization is at.
4: Yeah, that's the difference between roster building and talent gathering. And you know, you're right. In the baseball draft, we do it's best available. And you know, the same could be said when we when we began gathering talent. Our our goal was you know how highest ceiling. It, make sure we're getting good makeup players with the highest ceilings. And the position they played was secondary to to making sure we were we were getting the upside potential you know now that we have acquired players in those categories the the goal is to let them grow see where the needs are now build a complete team and you know, that's our that's what we're doing this year. And it's a little bit different to to at times mm-hmm. a lot different than, than just simply going out and trying to access the highest talent you can.
2: Years ago, I remember the story of Theo Epstein spending Thanksgiving with Kurt Schilling in order to uh, get that deal done when he brought him into in, in the before the 2004 season. Will, will we hear about you spending the holiday at somebody's house trying to convince them that Seattle is the place to go?
4: It's funny. I, I was actually working for the Red Sox that, when we made that deal, and and, and talking through it uh, that morning. But no, I, I plan on having Thanksgiving at home, <laughs> and uh, you know. But
1: you can zoom I,
2: that I thing these it.
4: days. <laughs> yeah, we we have uh, you know the big thing for us this year. We do have I think uh, you know three and potentially four uh, visitations set up between now and and Thanksgiving. So we're going to log some miles here in the next week, but. A big thing for us is once we've met with the agent, once we understand that there is uh, a, a, I guess we, we have common ground and uh, an in, in interest with you know, the players that we're pursuing, that uh, we think meeting that player face to face is a really important element. And you know, especially after the the, the pandemic and and what we were had gone through and trying to recruit players via Zoom, while that's still available to us, you learn so much more about someone when you're sitting down with them live and and you get a feel for what the person is about and, and we think that's an important next step and and really looking forward to, to getting the ball rolling awesome. on those visits
2: well jerry thank you uh this has been great really enjoy it thanks for all the information and and just your candidness uh thanksgiving a week from today so i guess we won't be talking next thursday but uh, i know you're a heck of a chef and food's important to you so uh what's uh, what's the number one most important part for thanksgiving before we go here
4: I mean, for me, the number one most important is that my wife makes the turkey. Okay. <laughs> so I don't screw it up, but uh, she does a wonderful job of it. We've got a killer uh, stuffing that, that we make. Is, we go. is amazing. Yeah. And I, I am uh, relegated to sous chef on on Thanksgiving, and my job is to make the vegetables, carve the turkey, and make sure that the dishes
2: get clean. Awesome. Well, be safe, man. Have a great holiday, and I hope when we talk next, we're talking about a couple new Mariners players. That would be a lot of fun. Thanks, man. Happy holidays. Same to you. All, All right, right. There you go. There's Jerry DePoto. I'm super late. We're gonna run real quick. We'll address a lot of that stuff later. First we're gonna to talk to the professor. We'll do it next. Mike Slok Show.
0: Interesting that DePoto said he was open to taking on a bigger contract player attached to a target, but that those deals are extremely difficult to make. He also noted that to some extent he has done this before, pointing out that they took on contracts in two thousand nineteen. That was worth another look, and I did, and you know, obviously we remember at that time. It was more about acquiring younger talent while offloading bigger contracts. None of it is really a good example of what they would try to do here. You had Gene Segura and Juan Nicasio for Carlos Santana and J.P. Crawford, then Flipping Santana for Edwin Encarnacion, the contracts they took to get Kelnick and move Cano. I think the biggest takeaway I had, which is something I was aware of, but it often gets missed. The Mariners spent a lot of money to tear this thing down. Their opening day payroll in 2019 was $146 million. That's not tear it down to the studs and save a whole lot of money type rebuild. What they did, of course, was get rid of big contracts and free up future dollars. And that's where we are right now. Good stuff with DePoto that Salk revisited on Need to Know at 9.15.
13: Here's the second thing. You need to know.
2: Great conversation with Jerry DePoto in the last hour. Said that they are making some progress, getting a little bit closer on some trade talks. Nothing necessarily imminent, but he seemed happy with the way that market was speeding up. Also, saying that in the next week before Thanksgiving, he has some specific free agent visits planned. And excited, not just that they're talking to free agents, but that they're going to be able to get in front of them in person. He makes a good point. Yeah, once you've met with the agent... And had the conversation with them and kind of worked on some of the basics and the terms. The players themselves have a limited amount of time to meet with teams, and they only want to meet with the ones that are finalists. So for Jerry to be meeting with some of the players that he will here in the next couple of days seems like a good sign for the Mariners. That doesn't guarantee anything, and it doesn't mean that any of these deals get done, but... He said that the players they've identified as their priorities are ones that they will be having meetings with. So I think that is a great sign. I'll continue to believe that that means people like Marcus Simeon, Trevor Story, Michael Conforto. Those would be three names that I would think would be near the top of their list. The other opportunity here, and it was a good conversation with Jason Churchill that brought brought us to this yesterday is the idea of taking on a level of salary not just to bring back prospects, but in this case to bring back other major league players that could help you now. He brought it up in regards to Cincinnati. Mike,
12: you've probably seen this before, but it's been suggested. If you're making a deal with the Reds and you're trying to get Luis Castillo, for example, that's not really going to help them cut payroll that much. But if you're willing to take on a good portion of, if not all of, the remaining money on Mike Moustakas' deal, you might be able to add both of those players, have a league average third baseman in Mike Konstackus, add a number 2 number 3 starter in Luis Castillo and not have to pay the prospect rate that you otherwise would. Yeah,
2: and and I cut him off, but what he's saying is not have to pay the prospect rate, right? So you don't have to give up as many of your young players. I love it and I think a deal like that could also signal to other free agents that the Mariners are serious moving forward congratulations to Ichiro he enters the Mariners Hall of Fame he will be the 10th member celebratory weekend planned in late August uh, his impact as a player obviously huge 10 straight all-star games 10 straight gold gloves rookie of the year MVP 262 hit season you name it Ichiro did it a one-of-a-kind unique player in almost every way
0: Thursdays on 710 are great for Mariner's Talk. You get to Poto at 8.30 on the Mike Salk Show and at 5, Wyman and Bob visit with MLB Network's John Marozzi. This week, however, Stelton had a bone to pick with Marozzi after finding out who he cast his ballot for in the Manager of the Year voting.
7: We talk to this guy every week. He's our NHL analyst, our MLB analyst, and our weekly conversations with our, with our guy, John Marozzi, presented by Stanford's Restaurant, and he joins us now on the... Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline. Hello, John. Good evening, gentlemen. I understand that the the topic that is of most
13: urgency right now is the state of the Kraken power play, which finally broke through in the third period last night, correct?
7: Is that the biggest concern? Is is that your biggest concern right now? Not my biggest concern. Are you trying to
8: distract Bob, (laughs) John Paul, in some way, shape, or form?
13: I I think, uh, Bob, do you want to begin this conversation with an update to last week to make sure that our listeners are fully up to date on our little in-family discussion here.
7: This is, you hear this music? You hear that? <laughs> it's from the Godfather. And this is what I... I, 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 I recognize I, that, I, yes. Listen. You broke my heart.
11: You broke my heart.
7: You broke my heart. I know it was <laughs> you, Fredo. You broke my heart. Because... As we talked last week, prior to the AL Manager of the Year voting, you you informed us that you were indeed a voter, but you couldn't divulge your, your correct your votes at that particular time. Well, we had the vote the other day, and the, the votes were made public, and everybody saw who voted for whom and, and in what order. More importantly, and we saw your name, John Morosi. We love John Morosi. He's he's your family, your family. And we saw the order in which you voted for the three finalists, and it went along the lines of Kevin Cash, Dusty Baker, and in dead last in your top three was Scott Service. You broke my heart, John. What happened?
13: I love that Turner phrase by the way. Can we can we get that as a as a permanent drop on the station? Dead last in your top 3. <laughs> <laughs> dead last in your top 3. Third no, out three of 3 is dead last. Third, that, He's just third place. It, third. It's it's like it's like the team that's fourth in the college football playoff rankings.
7: Dead last
13: in the playoffs.
7: Of the top dead four last. of the top
13: of the top four he was dead, dead last, last on
7: your Oh, I love that. I love that. John, that's, what happened?
13: So I I actually, I voted dusty one cash to dusty right? one.
7: Right. I'm dusty sorry. Won. I had that. I had and that so answer.
13: again, does that make it worse?
7: The, well, yeah, well, a little bit actually.
13: Well, <laughs> again, I, I was, I was so off base that I voted for the manager who eventually got his team to the world series. Right. Tremendous oversight, clearly on my part with that almost uh,
7: $200 million payroll load of well, talent. What a remarkable uh, managerial job.
13: You're right. And, and a couple things, uh, To me, the context, if you look at what Dusty uh, was able to do this year, I'll I'll speak positively about Dusty, and then I I will get on to the rest of the rationale Ballot. Look at the rotation that obviously he did not have available to him. Granke was barely a factor by the end of the season. Verlander didn't throw a pitch. Uh, McCullers was injured by the end, too. There were a lot of things that he did that I think were really important to impact his club and eventually win a division. If you look at the history of this award, there's two ways to look at it, really. It's do you vote for the person who does the most with the least, which might have given you more of a Scott Service vote or perhaps Kevin Cash, given what the Rays always had to deal with every year, or is it full-on achievement with the context of the organizational framework second. And for Dusty to win a very competitive division with that win total, with the the flaws on that roster, yes, there are a lot of attributes on the Houston roster as well, but he eventually won the division. He ultimately won the division by five games over the Mariners. And I realize that, that in Scott Service's case, did he do more relative to expectations? Sure, yes, I would agree with that. But that's not, to me, the exact framing of the award. Uh, the the award is for the manager of the year. And for me, that five-game gap between what the Astros did and what the Mariners did was meaningful to me. And I I don't think I would have put Scott in a different place had they – won one more game and made the playoffs i really think that when you consider what kevin cash did winning 100 games in the al east with with that competition that level he won the division cash won the division dusty won the division scott was five games back great season 90 wins but ultimately i had him third on my ballot
7: Mm, mm, mm. you broke my heart john i
13: know but may i say this (laughs) may i say this so and and this is this is a difficult conversation. I'll I'll grant you, difficult conversation. But I'll tell you this quick story. Uh this is not this is not the most controversial ballot I have had uh, as a member of the BBWAA. Number of years ago, it was, it was 9 years ago I think. I had voted David Price one and Justin Verlander two. Verlander of course in Detroit at the time. This was my own chapter, the Detroit chapter, typically, traditionally, over the years, when things are close, you give the vote to your own chapter's player. That's just mm-hmm. how it's been done traditionally. But I looked at the, the numbers that year. David Price won, I think, 20 games that year in the AL East. Uh, and to me, there was a lot of significance in his overall performance. So I voted for Price instead of Verlander. Had I voted for Verlander, Verlander would have won. Instead, Price won. I literally cast the deciding ballot in a Detroit Tiger not getting the award as a member of the Detroit chapter. So uh, that was a pretty contentious one. I remember this. I called my grandfather probably the next day. I said, Grandpa, uh, I, my vote basically cost Verlander the, the Cy Young. Uh, and he sighed. There's like silence on the other end of the line. And I said, I'm sorry, Papap," And he said, it's okay, son. You voted your conscience, and I'm proud of you. And by the way, you know, no one's going to know anyway because it's a secret ballot. And I paused and I said, uh, Grandpa, (laughs) it's actually not a secret ballot and everybody knows he said ah oh, and then he he said a swear word that i can't say but uh but he uh he was just teasing me about it he said that said, you can still come to thanksgiving next week which <laughs> which i hope is true for us the next time we celebrate in person that, that i'm still welcome back into the family
7: yeah i just don't know that i'm going to be able to for, for let you forget it i, I just okay. i think if i were voting it, we just look at it differently i dusty would have come in dead last because he was built for this they had had he and cash not made it to the postseason we would have talked about both of them underachieving. You're talking about the manager of the year the previous year that got to the World Series, so he mm-hmm. achieved less than he did the previous year, and they added Nelson Cruz in the stretch run. Uh, you've got a team that's just absolutely loaded, despite the omissions you talked about in terms of injuries with, with Dusty Baker and a payroll that was just under a shade of 188 million, fifth in the in the reason the, the AL West was competitive was because of the team right behind them that was expected by everybody's estimation to be a 70 to 75 win team that lost their biggest acquisition 24 pitches into the season, lost two other starters, lost Mark Gavages, lost the rookie of the year, lost their gold glove first baseman, and then didn't have a single 300 hitter and probably had more hitters that were hitting below 200 than any other lineup in baseball, yet somehow, some way, was able to put up 90 wins in that division. That's that's a manager. That's somebody who was managing his tail off
13: every every game. And I I grant you that. I I also think that we have to consider too the context of of Dusty taking over that job under very extreme circumstances and and guiding them through what was a very unique year. Now, obviously, 2020 was unique for them in some ways, uh, but 2021 was the first time they were playing on the road in hostile environments. Uh, and, and I just think he did a very admirable job he 's someone who has always represented the game with a lot of uh, with a lot of class as Scott Service has done as Kevin Cash has done. as I said last week, I believe this wholeheartedly. There were three correct answers so uh in, in my in my reckoning at least, Scott Service was not dead last on my ballot he was He was narrowly narrowly third on a very closely contested <laughs> medal podium for me to use the Olympic reference. How about that?
8: I, I like the the dead last in a three man dead last heat. in the
13: top 3 was just yeah. we're going to have to go that, sucks, that that's like the old uh uh the the old story where where if 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 there's one uh, one account of a particular race of a two man race and and it's it's the hometown paper of of the guy that finishes second yeah. and and says uh uh our man finished second Theirs was next to last.
7: Listen, Ricky Bobby <laughs> said it best. If you're not first, you're last. <laughs> so, uh, Yeah, we'll, we'll just agree to disagree. Okay, because agree I, to disagree. Dust, Dusty was the lead, and I'm a huge Dusty fan, by the way. Yeah. I, I've been a longtime fan of Dusty Baker, so this isn't about him. Yeah, I mean, his his team brought upon themselves what they had to go through. I they, yeah. I got zero sympathy for that. Yeah, group.
8: but Bob, he had to face fans. Oh, that, for that the was first terrible time.
7: for the first time. Yeah, and Carlos Correa was crying that during the season they faced no fans. Like, That's enough. That's enough already. Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm going to be the uncle
8: <laughs> at Thanksgiving that steps in. And <laughs> says, all right, okay, all right. okay. Bring Jay us Kans. all there back we go. together. We're good. We're good. What do you think about uh, a couple of these signings we saw? Uh, Verlander, who you mentioned earlier. uh, Twenty-five million, and then who's the other one? Noah Syndergaard, Syndergaard, twenty-one million. Yeah, and you know, look at the guy has not thrown much in the last couple
13: of years. What about
7: two the, innings?
8: Do you think it's going to be? Uh, it's going to be like this. It's going to get get uh, crazier than this as far as numbers go, John. Paul?
13: It's a great question, and I, I think we will see for the top of the market. It will it, the the numbers will be huge, and I think we're seeing here. The shorter-term deals, uh, by and large, of course, Verlander and Syndergaard both, uh, in the case of Verlander, two years, Syndergaard one year. Eduardo Rodriguez was a multi-year deal to the Tigers. Jose Barrios signed the extension with Toronto. I I, I do believe it's going to be busier on the pitching front than the position player front. I don't get the sense at all that Carlos Correa is close to signing. I think he is going to take his time. I saw there was a report today, obviously, that he met with Tigers manager A.J. Hinch, uh, of course, both with Houston Connections. That's an interesting story to watch unfold. But I do believe, especially between now and the end of the month, the uncertainty with respect to the CBA, that we will see more pitching signings than position player signings. John Heyman did have the report today that perhaps Starling Marte could be one position player who signs somewhat early. But I really believe the, the pitching side of things has has matured quickly enough that we're starting to see where the price points are, where the comfort levels of teams are. Uh, Jose Barrios's multi-year extension had a free agency value of around twenty million dollars per year. That's one good stake to put down to know that's that's the going rate for a top ten pitcher in the American League. Cindergard maybe he gets a little bit of a bonus. Uh, because it's, it's a one-year deal and only one year of risk for the Angels. Perry Manassian knows him well. I think from a Mariner perspective, the takeaway is the Angels are, are pretty serious here. Where, where I, my understanding was they were in there on Verlander towards the end as well. They're going to keep trying to add. We just saw Utani win the MVP tonight. The, the Angels and Perry Manassian have really resolved to not waste any more years of Mike Trout's prime. And that, to me, is one Huge takeaway from the last several days. But, yeah, Dave, as, as you point out, Noah Syndergaard, two innings pitched in the last two years, gets you more than $20 million in free agency. It's, Unbelievable. It's quite a thing to contemplate. Boy,
8: how do you go to your owner and say, I want to spend this $21 million,
7: and then the owner says,
8: Let me, let's look at the kid's stats. What do you got here?
7: Two innings.
13: Two
8: innings. two innings gave up a home run during those two innings no yeah. curve
7: balls no breaking balls and right. his his uh, velocity's down 3 miles per hour it's got to be sounds tough like sell. 21 to me tough sell. right
13: <laughs> right but that but that again it it speaks to what i would say is, is the the relative health of the industry still that that obviously a, a contract like that can be given to a player who has yeah. barely pitched good point point. and yeah. it also I, I think free agency is unique, and, and, and both of you have covered it in different sports and been part of it uh, in, for a long time. It's it's always the kind of thing that involves a story, if you will. You almost never get true dollar-for-dollar dollar ROI on a free agent investment. It's As Alex Anthopoulos, the, the GM l- long-time of, of Toronto, now, of course, the GM of the, the World Series-winning Braves, has always said, every contracted free agency is an overpay On the day it is signed. Mm. And by that he means that that by definition, no other team was willing to go to whatever you went to to sign the player. So that means that no one else values the player at that point except for you. And that to convince your owner of that, you have to really explain why you believe in him. And, And in this case, Perry Manassian was part of the Blue Jays front office at the time that Noah Syndergaard was drafted as a high school player from Texas more than a decade ago. And so Perry can say to Artie Moreno and John Carpino, I believe in this player. I know this player. I've seen him since he was a teenager. He's healthy now. I believe he gives us 150 innings, whatever it might be. And uh, that's the story. There, there almost always is going to be a story behind these larger free agent signings. And I think for the Mariners, it's going to have to be up to them to, to craft that story to someone like a Marcus Simeon, who we believe wants to play on the West Coast, is open to playing second base, and would be a tremendous player to have for the Mariners on and off the field.
7: Yeah, we'll we'll get to hockey here in a, in just a moment. But quickly, in terms of the rotation, who should the Mariners be looking? I don't expect them to go, you know, the biggest name out there in in, in the way of uh, free agents. But what what about somebody like Marcus Stroman? What do, how how does he fit here? I, I I like his tenacity. I like his attitude, and and he's a guy that has, is coming off a really good year. Uh, is is he a realistic possibility, or who do you, who do you think they should? Because uh, Jerry has said two two additions to the starting rotation yes. is what they're looking at.
13: Yes, and and so here's here's the thought, and I think Strowman's a great name. I could see him really jiving well with with the city, with the team, with the culture, with the organization overall, and. He would also probably come at a relatively reasonable price point. Uh, I don't think he's going to be up near where Robbie Ray is. Right. He'll get he'll get paid, but it's not going to uh, totally transform your payroll. Let's put it this way: I, I don't want to create false expectations for Mariner fans. But if if you go with a best case of the best case scenarios, I believe that financially speaking, and also prospect speaking, it's possible for the Mariners to get. Semion as a major free agent or or if not semian perhaps a Chris Taylor, someone that really can play in the middle part of the diamond for you. So that that would be your free agent big splurge position player wise. I believe that, that Strowman is within the price range they can handle among a pitcher, among pitchers. And then I think trade wise, whether it's one of the arms from the from the Marlins like a Pablo Lopez or Elisa Hernandez or Luis Castillo with with Cincinnati there's a way because of how deep the Mariners are with their position players, the likes of George Kirby, Hancock, perhaps almost by definition. If you're going to get Castillo, you probably have to give up one of the two of them. If you're going to say that Rodriguez is off limits, the point is they have enough assets. They've managed their payroll well enough. They don't have a ton of bad money on the books. They're going to be able to be creative. And when you think about what Kyle Seeger was making and what Marcus Simeon could make in 2022, that gap is not huge. It's Semyon will probably make more than what Seeger made this past year, but not by a franchise-changing amount. So there's, and certainly you have to pay raises and arbitration to other players. I get that, but the the way the payroll is set up allows the Mariners, I think, one major position player, free agent, a starting pitcher, free agent of consequence, maybe like in the Stroman range, and then make a trade for a starter. I think all, that that is a lot. It's a lot, but the, the Mariners have managed their payroll efficiently enough that that type of home run is possible.
0: I don't like what he said about manager of the year. I do like what he said about possible Mariners moves, and I also like how he pointed out that none of this is automatic. They are in position to make the moves he's talking about, but there's a lot of competition for these players. On Friday morning, Mike Salk checked in with his thoughts on what we heard from Morosi.
2: I mean, that's a pretty good start. Simeon and Strowman, I would certainly start there and be fairly happy about where you're at. How would you feel about Chris Taylor? Would that be too difficult for for you to handle? Like, so Not at you all. you may remember the story, right? Chris Taylor was here, drafted by I think Jack Zerencik, came up with the Mariners, didn't do squat. I mean, he just wasn't very good when he came up. Jerry traded him after like a year and a half or whatever it was here in in Seattle. He goes to L.A., he fixes his swing. Completely changes it, becomes a convert to the whole uppercut swing thing, right, swing angle or swing plane and launch angle and all of that, and immediately becomes like a star in L.A., has had a whole bunch of huge postseason moments, etc., has hit a ton of home runs, all while playing good defense and running around a little bit. You didn't get him for, you know, you trade him for nothing you would you be okay with now paying for his next section after missing out on Chris Taylor as a cheap player? I would. Yeah.
3: What I mean, what was the what's the argument against it just out of like spite? Like I don't want to have to pay for something that I
2: pain point, right? Just like I can't believe I gave away the good years of Chris Taylor and then if you were to then pay for years and they <laughs> don't go as well? It's just such a, it's just such an ugly situation to even think about. I understand that you should always just say, hey, good, t- good talent is good talent. Yeah. And he, he can fill so many
10: gaps that when you have to move people around based on the pitching matchups, too, he can play so many positions. It would be so hard for me,
2: man. And it's one of the many good reasons why I'm not a general manager of a team but I would have so much difficulty bringing in Chris Taylor, just knowing that I screwed up the first time.
10: How did you feel about Morosi's tweet about the Rangers showing interest in Semyon, in addition to their pursuits of Corey Seeger and Trevor Story as well?
2: Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, the Rangers are going to be in on everybody. They're supposed to be spending another $100 million or maybe $200 million this offseason. So, I I yeah, I'm, I'm not player, surprised by
10: that. One player on their 40-man roster with a guaranteed contract for 2022.
2: Right. I mean, so like the, the Rangers are super young. We saw them last year. They're feisty by the way, right? I mean, I don't, they weren't as good as the Mariners were last year mostly because their bullpen was trash but they were a feisty little team that
10: yeah, gave us fits yeah. right
2: I mean like there were some pretty good battles against the Rangers and some feisty guys in there I love Isaiah Kiner-Faleffer he's one of my favorites I think that guy's a really good player and so yeah I I, I you, you don't get to operate in a vacuum right it's not like hey we've decided to spend money this year so everybody else back out you don't get to call it Right, it's not like my kids when they're like, "Oh, I call this." Like, no, you don't get to call it. I remember dibs on Marcus Simeon. You don't call shotgun <laughs> because, like, you want Marcus Simeon. It doesn't work that way. Oh, oh, it's a two thousand twenty-two off-season shotgun. Yeah, we're going big this year. You guys better uh, better not spend. We're we're spending this year. You spent last year. It did not work that way. I remember we were going to uh, we went to Rosarito my freshman year of college. Have you ever been to Rosarito? No, we went to Rosarito, and uh, we decided, like you know, two three months ahead of time, we're going to go to Rosarito. We're like, all right, we're going to Rosarito. You know what Nate said? Shotgun. Like first thing he said, he's like you can't call shotgun two and a half months before we drive to Mexico. Isn't it right? Right across the border from San Diego? Uh, no, that's Tijuana. You get to you get to walk. You got to take a train. To Tijuana, to uh, to San Diego, then like a. But it's still not far. Ch- it's not like you're well, going down. No, you take a cab, but it's still a good half hour, forty five minutes, maybe more from uh, from okay. Tijuana. But I'm saying,
10: calling shotgun to Rosarito versus calling shotgun to down the, the whole Baja. Well, sure. Dinner.
2: Either way, you can't call two and a half months out, right? <laughs> don't you have to be within sight of a car before <laughs> you can call shotgun?
10: I don't know what the ed- shotgun etiquette is. You. Well, I'm what was your with shotgun? I don't know shotgun. Etiquette. I'm siding with about? you on this. What was your shotgun etiquette in high school? I don't, we don't really think we did. Everybody drove their own trucks then. I don't really think... Don't you would all this.
2: drive to the same place? Oh, yeah. I thought Montana was supposed to be, like, environmentally friendly. Absolutely not. <laughs> what?
10: It blows my mind. I say that all the time when I go home. I'm like, how do you guys not want to protect this beautiful place? Yeah. No, we're just throwing pallets down and just pouring quarts of oil on them to start uh, our party bonfires all every right. weekend still.
2: Well, we did not do that. We we always have to you know put a group together, especially designated drivers, et cetera. So... We, uh, yeah, somebody, there are shotgun rules. More and no shotgun rules. Usually you've got to be within sight of the car, right? First okay. person to call it within sight of the car. That that was always our rule because you couldn't just do it like, hey, we're going to drive to the store. Shotgun. Like, eh, no, we're not inside of the car. Some people <laughs> played where you had to touch the car, which I thought, you know, kind of led to, you know sprained ankles oh, <laughs> like, races? or whatever yeah, yeah racing to the car in order to call shotgun although i suppose there's a little bit more if you want right to ride the back
10: of this back of our scooter we call that cupcake cupcake hey yeah, you're cupcaking who's cupcaking tonight yeah all right
2: well you that... want you want a cupcake tonight son? no i don't i don't i don't want to cupcake as a as a verb <laughs> i think i'm i think i'm all set <laughs> no, this is getting creepy. here's a little bit more from john morosi
13: and then i think trade-wise whether it's one of the arms from the from the marlins like a pablo lopez or Elisa Hernandez or Luis Castillo with, with Cincinnati. There's a way because of how deep the Mariners are with their position players, the likes of George Kirby, Hancock perhaps. Almost by definition, if you're going to get Castillo, you probably have to give up one of the two of them if you're going to say that Rodriguez is off limits. The point is they have enough assets. They've managed their payroll well enough. They don't have a ton of bad money on the books. They're going to be able to be creative.
2: They are. They. I mean, John's right about all of that. But at the same time, Justin, what you bring up is important, too. You don't get to do it in a vacuum. So when you hear that Texas is interested in those three free agents, it doesn't mean they're going to sign all three of them. They may not get any of but them. But if they're going to spend $200 million and the Mariners is a hundred, Right. Well, we don't know what the Mariners are. We don't really know what Texas is either. Totally I mean, fair. We just know that these teams want and are willing to go spend money. So if Texas It's also is going like, to drive the price up for everybody, too, if well, they know everybody's willing, willing and to And we spend don't much. know where this information comes from. Is it coming from the agents of all of those players? Texas is interested, and Seattle is interested, and L.A. is interested, and New York is interested, and Chicago is interested, and drive the price up, and there's a mystery team. We haven't even gotten to the Scott Boris mystery team yet. You know that's coming, right? Boris is Simeon's guy now, right? So, unfortunately, it's a weird offseason, so I don't know what the timing is going to be, but if for some reason a miracle happens and they get this uh, this deal done before December 1st, just let's write this down right now. Winter meetings, okay? Marcus Simeon has narrowed it down. There are three teams that are most interested. It's the Rangers, the Mariners, the Dodgers, and the mystery team. The Los Angeles Rams. And the Rams may make an over-the-top offer. They're willing to (laughs) give up another draft pick. The Rams are willing to give up their 2027 first-round pick in order to get Marcus (laughs) Simeon. Or maybe it's the Saints. Maybe they want to pair him with Trevor Simeon. (laughs) <laughs> they want a Simeon-Simeon combo at quarterback this year. They just anybody they can bring in to play ahead of uh of what's his name, who they gave all that money to. Taysom Hill. Taysom Hill. Right. Like, oh yeah, no, we'll start Marcus Simeon a quarterback, as long as it's not Taysom Hill. He just gets paid. We don't play him, whatever it is. Yeah, there's gonna Gotta be him uh, in the lineup though, because Joe Buck loves him. He does like him Taysom Taysom Troy. Hill. he does. Uh so yeah, there's gonna be um there's gonna be it'll there'll be a mystery team. this this thing will get messy. The agents will look for leverage. There'll be moments where you're terrified that the Mariners are going to be left out without getting, uh, you know, the the whole uh, musical chair situation where you're the one left holding the bag. That can happen, and you're going to worry about it. But remember, agents are out there just looking for leverage, and so a lot of these reports come from them, and you don't have to worry about them. Also, too much.
10: also the player has a, a say in this. Like we talked about this with the Seahawks, is this Seattle this? a destination that we've been overhyping for from a player's perspective because we think it's a great place to go? Is it the opposite for the Mariners? Well, I don't know that we
2: think it's a great place to go. I mean, like, the Kevin Mather thing did significant damage to the Mariners' reputation, which wasn't sterling to begin with. I don't know what the Kyle Seeger thing is going to do to the Mariners' reputation, so we'll see. Like, they have an uphill battle ahead of them. I think one of the assets they have, and I mentioned this a few minutes ago, is Jerry's ability to talk. Get Jerry in front of people and allow him to explain what they're doing. I was <laughs> hoping Griffey was going to be involved in that conversation, he too. He might be. That doesn't mean he's not. We've heard that Griffey will help. We've heard that J.P. Crawford will help. The Mariners have some people who can help sell. So good. They're going to have to. A couple texts here, 206-421-3776. It's like real estate agents driving prices up by saying, oh, I have multiple offers. Can you imagine if the uh, if, if baseball went to the whole like escalating offer thing? That, uh, that, that that real estate does, right? This is a whole thing in real estate now. You have escalators, right? You're going to buy a house for, let's say, $100,000. I don't know where that house would be. Very, very far away. Let's say it's $500,000. Let's it's, be real. It's realistic. in my hometown. Right? All right. $500,000 house. That's on the market for 500000 And what you do is you say, all right, you put in an offer. You know there's going to be multiple offers. So you put in an offer for five hundred grand. But then you escalate it up to $600,000. you are willing to pay $600,000 for the house. So you say escalators uh $20,000 up each time up to 600,000. So that means if somebody bids 510, you're willing to go to 520. Right? And then you get the house for 520 if you're the highest bidder in theory. If somebody's willing to go to 550, well I'm willing to go to 560. So I'm willing to jump all the way up there. So th- you can do that, but if somebody's willing to go to 610, you lose the house cuz you're only willing to go to 600. Gotcha? I'd be interesting to if if Scott Boris decided that was the best way to maximize money and just said, "Hey, seal your bids. Tell me what you're willing to do." I wonder how much money they would get for their clients if he tried that that concept. I bet you'd be a ton escalators all the way up, and it does help the the buyer as well because you don't have to pay you know so much more than the next than the next uh, highest bidder. The problem you would have in baseball is that they would absolutely collude like the teams would 100% collude like with each other. Like it's got it. a lot of room for that. Absolutely. The teams would definitely collude in a way that you can't in real estate because generally you don't know the other people making offers, right? You're just desperately trying to get a house.
0: And one last Mariners item from the week followed shortly after as Sox sat down with Andy McKay.
2: I'm excited about this. Andy McKay taking a few minutes, and uh, we certainly appreciate him joining us here in the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline. Andy's been the director of player development for the Mariners for what is it, six years or so? Andy, you've been there, and now uh, a new uh, a new job for you this year in the organization. Tell us what you're going to be doing.
14: Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, this is a uh, a new role, um, a little bit of a, a hybrid role. I'll still be working kind of throughout the player development system and uh, into the minor leagues but I'll be doing it from the um, from Seattle and doing it um, as a coach uh, with the major league staff trying to help Scott and our players
2: so what's the what's the reasoning behind it how did this come about and what are you hoping it does for the team
14: well the reasoning behind it that would be you know a little bit more of a I guess a Scott and Jerry question but you know obviously I was um, I was thrilled at the opportunity. And, you know, I think for the team, it just it gives me a chance to, um, you know, to continue to, to find ways to have impact and ultimately help us win a baseball game each night and, and get closer to, you know, being in the postseason consistently and, and ultimately winning a World Series. Um, so, you know, on a daily basis, it's just a way to to find a way to help our players and help our staff. Uh, you know, get better in, in, in some form or fashion.
2: For those that aren't as familiar with you and your story, I mean, you were kind of a non-traditional pick uh, when they brought you in to run the farm system. And I, I don't mean to speak for you, so correct me if I'm wrong. You almost come more from the mental skill side of things, right?
14: Yes and no. And that's been a little bit of a, um, it, it is true. And I'm very passionate about it. And that's a, it's a little bit of how I, On my way into professional baseball, it's originally how I was hired with the Rockies. Um, But I've also, you know, I've done just about a bit of everything. I've I've been a head coach for fifteen or so years. Mm -hmm. I've been a pitching coach. I've been a hitting coach. um, Been a recruiting coordinator, and so I've done a lot of different things. And you know, the mental skills piece has has been a a way that um, it has opened a lot of doors for me. But I guess b- before I was a mental skills coach, I was a baseball coach
11: Yeah,
14: and this is just part of it. And what I've always tried to, um, you know, explain to people, educate people around is the idea that, you know, good coaching involves mental skills coaching. I mean, you're not before you can coach baseball, you're coaching people. And, um, you know, so the label has definitely stuck. Um, uh, but I, I just think it's good coaching,
2: um, if that makes sense. I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's it's marrying a lot of the knowledge of the game and of baseball and and then bringing an additional element to it that you're right is sort of – I mean, the idea of a mental skills coach, in some ways, that's just what coaches are. They're helping players be put in the right – position. just somebody who can focus on it a little bit more, right? Somebody who has the time and energy to just think in that direction.
9: Correct, and you're trying to to bring
14: a lot of different things together. And, you know, there's a – A, a, a really good example. I think that most people in Seattle, certainly the the the, the hardcore followers of the uh, of the Seahawks, can understand. You know the the work that Pete Carroll's done with with Michael Gervais, um, who who he's it, it's it's way out there in the open. It's not something that's kind of hidden. That that relationship has been a big part of what's happened there. And then um, you know Russell Wilson's work with Trevor Moad, mm-hmm. who unfortunately passed away uh, a couple months back. But, you know, those two people have spent an an enormous amount of time and commitment, um, you know, working on their mental game. And and I think it shows. How
2: how much, and we're talking to Andy McKay uh, here on, on 710 ESPN Seattle, because baseball is so unique, how much time have you spent thinking about and trying to teach players how to handle failure?
14: I think... I think every coach, uh, not just what, what we're doing, but the answer would be a lot. And, you know, anytime you've got a schedule that is 162 games plus a, uh, you know, a six week spring training and then hopefully a deep run into the postseason, you know, failure is just, it's, it's a guaranteed. And I mean, if you're a great team, you win a hundred games, you lose 62 of them. That's a lot. That's 62 nights. You go home kind of sick to your stomach and. If you just go around our roster, and even if you go historically, you know, and you look at look look at Edgar's path to the Hall of Fame, how much failure there was, you know, involved in that um, in in that journey. But if you just go across, um, you know, our diamond right now, it wasn't always easy for J.P. Crawford. And Look what he's had to have gone through to get to, to the level he's at right now. What Mitch Haniger uh, has had to have gone through. Uh, the challenges that Kellenic had immediately when he came up, Evan White, Kyle Lewis, uh, Marco, everybody, it's, it's not an option. You're going to be dealing with, with hard stuff and you're going to be dealing with adversity and failure. And so hopefully equipping the player and even the coach, um, you know, with a skill set to handle that because in our sport, the problem is you have the failure and then you've got another game coming the next night. So your recovery skills and your ability to, to accept it, to learn from it, to handle it and then get right back to the next day,
11: it, it,
2: it's critical. Yeah, and you bring up Kelnick's name, and obviously he's he's such an important part of of what's being built here. And and from a fan and media standpoint, so much focus on him. His struggles were obviously very public this year, and and just sort of that well, oh for sixty or whatever it was. What did you guys do to help him? How do, how do you help him through something like that?
14: There's a you know you got to have a a lot as I would explain it. You have to have a a large uh, toolbox with a lot of different tools. You know, so there's that old saying, if the only thing you had was a hammer, then everything becomes a nail. And every player you're, you're coaching is a different person dealing with a different issue or, or a different situation in their life. And, you know, with JK, uh, a, a lot of the credit goes to what was going on in Tacoma uh, with Chris McGrone, our manager and, and Roy Howell, our hitting coach, uh, Eric N. Jr. was there and they were all people that just welcomed him back, and uh were very honest and truthful with him, uh but also you know had their arm around him and and definitely made him feel like we're in this together, we're here to help you, and uh we're gonna try to walk in your shoes with you for a bit and and they did, and he was able to reset and when he came back up, obviously he had a great last month, and we played our best at the end of the season. Jared Kellenick was playing his best, and mm-hmm. obviously was a big part of that. Um, really exciting finish to our season.
2: You know it strikes me that that as that not just you, but there's a couple of members of the of the major league coaching staff that came up through the player development part of what the Mariners do. Is that done on purpose as more and more of these young players are starting to make their way into the big leagues to give them familiar faces when they get there?
14: I would say yes and no. It's on purpose that we are really intent on developing our coaches. And that's at every level um, of our system, including our, our major league group. That our coaches are constantly involved in, in ways to improve themselves and make themselves a, a more impactful uh, coach. And just like our our players have off season plans, you know, in the batting cage or in the weight room or um, you know a throwing program for our pitcher, all of our coaches have plans as well um, in ways that they need to to get better and, and ways to to, to improve. But anytime we have an opening, I mean, there's a full interview process and, and we've always looked outside and we've always tried to just get the best person available, uh, to improve the situation. And in some, in many ways, they have been players, that, I mean, excuse me, coaches that have come to our system. And in some ways you've, you've looked to the outside. Um, but our internal coaches have, they've done a great job. And, you know, uh, Pete Woodworth and Trent Blank, what they've done on the pitching side. You know Jarrett DeHart on the hitting side, Carson Vitali. Um, so it has been a big part of what we've done, and and I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Anytime that you can promote from within, it's a it's a it's a it is a positive.
2: It is uh, it is hot stove time. We only have a couple more minutes here, but I'll ask you: What makes Seattle an attractive place for a free agent to sign right now?
14: Gosh, that's a great question, and and I think it's a pretty easy one to answer. One, it's the city of Seattle. Uh, it's an amazing place. It's a wonderful place in the summer. It's one of the most popular places for visiting players during the season. Two, we have one of the best young, exciting teams in all of baseball. Three, we have a thriving farm system. Um four, we've got a great manager in uh in Scott Service. And you know, five, I I guess it's probably our owner, John Stanton, who is so committed to trying to win a World Series and and provide that type of experience for our fans and I don't know that there's ever been a better time to be a Mariner, with all of these things lining up at the same time. And um, I think any player who who decides to sign with us, uh, they're going to they're going to really be happy with their decision a couple of years down the road. Here,
2: what number are you going to wear? You're going to be in uniform. What number are you going to wear? <laughs> Have you thought about this? Does it matter after, to you?
14: No, I've never been a number guy, and I've always been uh, whatever numbers are left after all the players uh, got their numbers and all the other coaches so uh i really have no idea um i don't think it'll be one of the retired numbers
2: um, <laughs> We're not, they're not so giving you 51 right
14: <laughs> no i don't think it's gonna be that and i, I think juniors number safe so yeah um yeah. it'll be it'll be a large number <laughs> i'll it'll probably start with a seven eight or nine that's my <laughs> guess and And uh, I'll be thrilled to wear it
2: either way. That's awesome. Congratulations. Really cool. It's such an honor to be able to wear the Major League uniform and be on the bench every day. Very, very cool. Congratulations, and uh, we'll look forward to talking again. Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on.
0: And that wraps up the Mariners week that was on 710. Thanks for listening, and we'll do it again next week.